does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Hey, what's happening? It is a Thursday, and might I add, and I've said this all week, broken record, I realize, it is a perfect Thursday. Absolutely perfect outside. You guys ever been to Denver, Colorado? Have not, no. Eddie? I will be going there in September, so in a couple weeks. What takes you to Denver? Uh, My girlfriend's dad lives out there now, so we're going out there to visit him in three weeks, have a little fun, go to a Rockies game. Go up in the mountains a little bit. Should be a blast. This is exactly what the weather's like in Denver, Colorado, which is why people live there. Like 360 days a year. No humidity, perfectly sunny. Absolutely spectacular. And here's the thing. It's what I love about it. On this Thursday, a day in which Kevin Bowen's going to join us in 30 minutes, Matt Taylor, the voice of the Colts, in an hour and a half, and at 2.30, one of those who is going to be participating in, as we always call it, the Super Bowl of drag racing, Matt Hagan of NHRA, joins us at 2.30 today. But the predominant conversation is going to be about, and our moratorium lasted a day. Because I said, we're not going to say the name Jonathan Taylor in the overriding narrative and opinion from most of our listening audience, many of which I texted with last night, which I appreciate, um, were saying, you can mention his name if we have some sort of clarity on the situation with him. And not unlike the weather today where it is absolutely perfectly clear outside, we now have a little more clarity on the situation with Jonathan Taylor in terms of why he's on the physically unable to perform list, Chris Ballard meeting with the media yesterday, uh, and we'll get into all of that. There's a lot to hear about and a lot to scrutinize. I have my own thoughts <clears throat> on where Chris Ballard, I thought, I, for lack of a better phrase, per, you know, performed well, not that it was like some sort of an audition, presented, presented himself well, but also I think painted himself a little bit into a corner. And we'll get into all of that. But before we do, let's begin with this. Jimmy Cook, how are you? How was your Wednesday? Oh, it was great. Great Roll, rolling through. I don't know. It was fine. It was it was, it was uneventful. Not really. No. Talk to you a little bit. You did playing on the show, which which automatically makes anyone's win. Exactly. It, it was it was automatically a great Wednesday in, in that regard. Uh, interrupted Eddie. I know that he went to a concert last night. And yeah, I Eddie. What concert him. did we go to? Uh, it was Five Seconds of Summer again. Uh, it's my girlfriend's favorite band. They were coming through here second consecutive year, and uh, there is a uh, question of whether or not they will be going on tour, and if so. I, or a tour again, and if so, how long it'll be? So, so wait, the name of the band is Five Seconds of Summer, or Correct. Five Seconds a Summer. Five Seconds of Summer, and they are from where? Australia. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, good day. Did you have Vegemite? <laughs> no, I did, did not you, did have you drink Vegemite. Fosters? What'd you say? Did you drink a Fosters? No. You know the thing about the band. I can tell you this right now, and I don't know this. <laughs> I don't know much about anything, but I do know this: uh, if a band is from Australia, Eddie, and you see them, it is always guaranteed that once they leave, they do come back. Just so you know. That's true with everything in Australia. That's a boomerang joke. Thanks for your assistance there. <laughs> I got it. I just didn't think it was funny. No, you were looking at me like, what in the world are you No, doing? I got it. Have I just think it was funny. No, I have not. I haven't traveled you outside of the United States. You know that if you flush a toilet in Australia, it actually rotates in the opposite direction? <laughs> That's true of anything in the southern equator. South of the equator. Did you know that? In the southern hemisphere? I did, I did not. I feel like I've heard it once before and then I thought it was away for a rainy I day. was... <laughs> 
I was on, not on, not literally on an airplane, but I was set to go to my, my college roommate and buddy from high school, Marcus Walton, lives in Auckland, New Zealand. Grew up here, and he had a. Um, isn't um, isn't that where Dixon's from? Scott Dixon. Correct. He was born in Brisbane, Australia, but was raised in Auckland, New Zealand. Correct. And so, <clears throat> Scott McLaughlin also from New Zealand. My buddy Marcus, like six years ago for his job, they said, do you want to take a one-year transfer to New Zealand to start up the office there? And he's like, you know what, why not? And he and his wife, actually, it's been more than that now. Anyway, he's never come back. So he's unlike the boomerang. He's unlike your band. He was down there, and he loves it. So I was going to Auckland to visit him and then to Australia to visit my buddy Michael and had a three-week trip planned in 2020. And literally the day before I was... To drive to the airport, Rudy Gobert tested positive, and the world shut down. Australia was the first country that was like, what? nobody's coming in. So to think that you could have been stranded out in Australia. I would, I, you know what? I probably would have been, right? For a long time. For a long time. Yes. That's a lot of Outback Steakhouses. A lot of, eat, <laughs> lot of eating Outback Steakhouses. How would Shannon survive without you? Oh, probably would have had just a fine time. <laughs> she would have been more than happy of me not being a boomerang. No question about it. Um, let's get into this. Yesterday, Chris Ballard met with the media and discussed the situation with Jonathan Taylor. And that was the predominant part of the conversation. Obviously, he meets every year with the media to discuss the roster as it's finalized or the last tweaks of the roster. But whenever you have a, an all-pro level running back that is in the middle of a contract dispute and situation, it is going to be the predominant part of the conversation. And I thought a lot about this last night. Somebody asked me, I was at the gym and I got a text and somebody said, hey, I want to know what you think about the Ballard situation. Hey, you, were you actually uh, working out at the gym? We, I can't remember if it was last week where somebody called in. They said Zach, they, Zach called in, so I usually yeah. just hang out in the cafe. Yeah. Uh, actually, were we on the treadmill this time? or the I did elliptical? the treadmill. I did the treadmill, and then I did uh, my buddy Bob, who's the trainer there, stretches me. It's a 45-minute stretch. It's brutal, man. Brutal. I'm telling you, like... You can actually hear things popping. It's kind of uncomfortable. I'll take the high road and not say anything inappropriate after that one. (laughs) Well done. Um, No, like I I have very tight hamstrings, Eddie. I'm not. Listen, I'm very comfortable with my masculinity. I have very tight hips. Really? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I won't say anything either. Jimmy, anything you want to add about your tight? I'm all right. I'm good. The flexibility of Jimmy Cook. So, somebody texted me and said, "I want to know what you think about this," and I said, "Well, I'll let you know tomorrow at noon." Right. Partially as like the ultimate tease and partially because I wanted time to kind of think through all of it. And what I thought about was this. It is our job to opine, critique, and assess comments, rosters, everything else. I totally get that. And in addition to that, I have always felt that our job when we have this microphone is to be the voice for people that don't have that microphone. So when I'm watching a Colts game, when I'm watching a Pacers game, and something happens where I'm I'm thinking to myself, what, what was 25-year-old Jake yelling at the television out loud rhetorically that he wants the answer to? Why in the world did you make that substitution? Why did you go for it there on fourth down? Why is so-and-so not in the game? And so I do think that it is our responsibility to ask those questions and get those answers or open that dialogue for fans. 
That is the responsibility of this job. And I do think in addition to that, that with that responsibility can come like a bravada that becomes, that's like maple syrup. A little taste of it's fine, but if you try to have people drink it every day, they're going to get tired of it. So there are times in the past where I would have come on this show and absolutely been, and I will still at times go on this show and be extremely stern, direct, and vociferous in a hardline opinion that I can't see as anything other than that opinion to be the right one. This situation's different to me because I do see both sides of it. And I, th- I think the best tactic and approach and I apologize if people don't like it and aren't used to it, is to simply kind of diplomatically analyze both angles of it because it is one situation where there are, I believe, two corrects. And in addition to that, I think we live in a world where people are getting fatigued by constantly hearing about how what they think is wrong and what everything else is right. So Chris Ballard, with that said it would be easy for me to sit here and say, what are we doing? What are we doing? Like, how many years into it are we? How many years into it are we going to get before we got to reset again and be asked for patience and be told that we know, like, you, you, you guys don't understand. You don't get what I'm doing. You think you know all the answers. I know what it's like, and so I'm going to try to roll here with three receivers. I've got a quarterback that played 13 games in college, and I've given him seemingly no weapons, and I had the greatest quarterback in the history of football that I saw come in here and retire at the age of 29 because he had no weapons. So what are we doing? I could do that and probably be right, Jimmy. But I'm going to choose to try to take just a more diplomatic approach to it, okay? I thought Chris Ballard yesterday – And this is one thing where I give him a ton of credit. Chris Ballard, we have become accustomed to, in our line of work, Jimmy, being cynical, right? Oh, yeah. Like when a a GM or a head coach starts talking about a touchy subject, what is your immediate preconceived notion when they're about to sit down? Do you think to yourself... They're, I'm going to get all the answers here, or do you think that they're about to give you some PR spin? I'm about to watch a tightrope act. Correct. That's a very good way of saying it, right? Yep. Do you remember that one fella, that the the Nick Volinda fella? I, I, yes, I know it's not. It's longer than that. I can't remember the name he, he now, was, but yes, I do know a, who you're talking about. He was about. a big deal for five seconds one summer, right? Yes, Eddie? yeah. Right? The Grand Canyon, Niagara nice Falls, or something there. like that. That's, I can't remember what it was. Right. Yes. That's right. And then you, you kind of never heard from him again. Um, but that's correct. And I will give Ballard credit because I think oftentimes Chris Ballard is pretty straightforward. And there have been times where you have thought to yourself, he's going to come out and lie and I'm not going to believe anything he says. And then he comes out and you're like, you know what? I think he's actually being pretty straightforward. And I thought yesterday was one of those. But in being straightforward, I think that he actually painted himself into a corner. And I think he, it is our job typically to question and devalue or delegitimize something that an executive says because you don't believe it. But sometimes they say something themselves that do it for you. And I'll give you an example. This was the highlight of the press conference yesterday. And credit to James Boyd because he's the one that asked the question. You always, when you're in a press conference, 
you know, it's always like, man, I'm the one that asked the question. They got like the million dollar soundbite. That's that's the sign of a good reporter, a good journalist. James Boyd, who you will hear, the audio dips a little bit, but you'll hear James's follow up. This is Chris Ballard when talking to James Boyd and discussing the hesitation or the thought process or the certainty, whichever way he was leaning on it, about paying big money or not paying big money to Jonathan Taylor. Chris Ballard yesterday with James Boyd's question, which is critically important because listen to the very end. I've said this all along. Like I didn't have, Quentin Nelson didn't have a problem playing a guard a lot of money, which other people don't either. Like you, when guys are having great seasons and great, have a chance to really help your football team? Absolutely. I mean, I, the running market is what it is, but look, great players are what they are too. So I, I think that all works. I think there's a... We won four games last year. We won four games. Okay. Here's what I heard from that. One could hear that, Jimmy, and say, Chris Ballard just called out Jonathan Taylor because he said, Jonathan Taylor's a great player, but even with him, we were a four-win team. Jonathan Taylor doesn't help me win games to the point that he merits getting paid the kind of money that a guy who helps me win games. That's how you could hear that. But here's how I heard it. Okay. How I heard it was, I'm willing to pay great players. I paid Quentin Nelson, who had multiple back surgeries and regressed last year, but had a big contract because I paid him and I was willing to extend him. I paid Shaquille Leonard, who had surgery because he had an ankle issue that turned into a back issue and missed games, even though he'd been an Ironman before that. But I paid him a big extension because he's a great player. I paid Naeem Hines, who was showed flashes of being a versatile player and did different things that we liked, and we were going to extend him, and I paid him, but then we ended up actually trading him. But I did pay him. Okay. I think Ryan Kelly, if I'm not mistaken, is probably one. There are a couple of others that we could put in this category. But then Chris Ballard at the end tried to checkmate and checkmated himself. Because what I heard him say there with, we won four games last year, was this. We won four games, and Jonathan Taylor wasn't even there for the vast majority of them. Yep. Meaning that the players that I opted to pay, the players that I selected as worthy, the payers, the players that I deemed as great players were themselves, in totality, worth four wins. Meaning, our roster's not very good. We're not a very good team. We were not good last year. And because we were not good last year, what he is trying to say is because we were not good last year, we have to look at the main pistons in the cylinder or, you know, the main pistons of the engine that were firing for us weren't firing enough. And what he admits in that soundbite is those main pistons were guys that he opted to pay, that he selected as being worth building your franchise around. And they won four games. So by his own admission, Chris Ballard there is saying he f- he is flawed in the way he built a roster. The roster is flawed, 
and the architect of it should be called into question because players were paid and extended because they were great players, but clearly it did not equate to a great team because they won four games. And last year, if you look at the better part of the season, Jonathan Taylor wasn't there for all of it. Quentin Nelson was. Chris Ballard was. Those are the guys that he actually indicted by his own words and not Jonathan Taylor. If I'm Jonathan Taylor's agent, that is 1,000% the case that I'm making. And listen, on the other hand with Jonathan Taylor, I thought, again, he tried to make one point and in some effect, it may have come back to hurt him. And that's when Jonathan Taylor, when it was asked about Jonathan Taylor and Chris Ballard was asked about the decision for Jonathan Taylor to go on the pup list. Now, Jimmy, we know this, okay? Present to me the scenarios of the different options they had of what they could have done with Jonathan Taylor 72 hours ago. They could have traded him. Okay. They could have activated him off the pup and had him ready to play for them. Right. Or they could have chosen to do what they ultimately did, which is leave him on the pup knowing he's going to miss the first four games of the season. Okay, so by missing the first four games of the season and by putting him on pup, automatically the question becomes does Jonathan Taylor really have an injury? Okay? Now, here's Chris Ballard on why the decision to put Jonathan Taylor on pup. We're not going to put a player on the field that's still complaining of pain in the ankle. We're not going to do that. An injury. I wouldn't do that to any player. Wouldn't treat anybody any differently. So what Jonathan will do is he will rehab his butt off and try to get himself ready to go. Okay. Does he mean ready to go to Miami or Green Bay? Or what does he mean he's getting ready to go for? Because this is still operating underneath the assumption, just like with Jim Mercer's comments a couple weeks ago, that everything's fine and dandy with Jonathan Taylor and he's committed to the team once again. That his holdout is over and he's ready to go out there and be a part of this team. Okay, here's the thing. I think he means ready to go here. No, I, 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 I think I Chris Ballard. Coy, but yes, I think Chris Ballard is speaking in terms of Jonathan Taylor. Uh, of that, you ever you ever had gone through a breakup? Sure. Okay. When you go through a breakup, there's always one side of the breakup that is like, no, 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 it, it's over. And there's one side of the breakup that's like, no, I, I really do think that like we can work this out. And the person that thinks they can still work it out is like talking to their friends and trying to talk to friends of the, the person that, that's breaking up with them, looking for glimmers of hope. Well, she did say that, that you know, I mean, I, she's going to let me come over and pick my stuff up. So, like, she does, she does want to see me. I, I really do think so. And all the friends are like, <clears throat> no, I, I think it – it probably is over. I, I I don't know. I, and and they're trying to be supportive, but at the same time, they're like, I, I think it's probably time to move on and start seeing other people. It, there is an extent of Chris Ballard that feel that that's what it feels like. He's like, no, no, no. We can still work this out. And Jonathan Taylor and his representatives are like, no, it's over. We, we it's over. But two things here. When he says, I'm not going to put a player out there who's complaining of pain. Isn't that Jonathan Taylor's entire argument, allegedly? Aside from the extension, isn't Jonathan Taylor under the impression that he was asked to perform duties with the sore ankle that he didn't want to perform? 
I think that's part of it. I think the other half of that equation, though, is that he is fearful for himself and other running backs with the amount of pressure they put on their bodies and no long-term security or lack of guaranteed money. No, to the totally point get that. that. Re-injury could occur. I think totally it's both points. Totally yes. get that. And I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination, I'm not accusing Chris Ballard of intentional negligence with an injury. Right. I'm, I'm not. But what he just said right there totally checkmated himself. Unless it was by design to basically say, right there in that comment, Chris Ballard essentially, he didn't take Jonathan Taylor off the trade market, but he took away any leverage he had in trading him. Yeah. If I'm the Miami Dolphins, if I'm the mystery team, the Green Bay Packers, which I don't think mystery team, I don't think that, there's not a bunch of guys driving around in a green van with a dog in the back, right, that, that are looking for Jonathan Taylor. But if you're any of those teams, you're, you're, matter of fact, his phone might be ringing louder now. Maybe that's why he did it. Maybe that's why he did it because his phone is now going to ring even louder because teams are going to call and be like, wait a minute. Like, you've got a guy that by your own admission, you have no idea how he's still hurt. You're telling me he's still hurt and he's on the pup list. So not only are you asking me to trade for a guy that can't play for four games, but you're asking me to trade for a guy whose ankle is still bothering him. A two to four week procedure has turned into like two to four quartiles. But Jake, everybody's different. Everybody's, uh, di- everybody's different. Of course. I mean... You got that later within the press conference. Some people repair faster than others. Well, do. there is actually some truth to that. But my point being, I would think a two to six week. My timeline. point being, he took any leverage from himself away. So now teams. Sure. So maybe he did it intentionally so that teams would finally go. All right, fine, we'll we'll do this. But he ain't going to get anything for him at this point. He has no, he has no intention of trading Jonathan Taylor. I agree with that, and it's revealed in my mind. He can't have any intention to to get, let me let me rephrase it, Jimmy. He can't have any intention of trading him for value because he took the value away yesterday. That too, but also even if he did have perceived value, his price point is clearly too large that he thinks he's going to get a serious offer from the NFL. How the Colts are going to proceed with this, barring an offer that really blows the door off them, was revealed in his opening statement. Quote. But what I'm going to tell you is Jonathan is valuable. And at the end of the day, I'm not just going to let him walk out the door. What that means to me is twofold. One, barring a high-level offer that satisfied Chris Ballard, Jim Irsay, and the rest of the Colts, he is not getting moved this year. And if he does play it out and decides he wants to earn himself a contract, which so many people have argued him to do, but I've continued to spout that he can try to do that. He's just going to wind up getting tagged and then maybe traded elsewhere. He's never going to get free agency as a Colt. He might get it somewhere else. It's not going to happen here. Correct. I would agree. They're with not that. letting him walk out the door for nothing. And I, I don't blame him, but that that's the play. The play is to let him go. If he wants to play this year, great. They'll welcome him. And if he has a great year, perhaps they can have contract negotiations, but the tag is a weapon. It's there for organizations to use in these situations. Jonathan Taylor will never reach free agency as an Indianapolis Colt. My thought is this on Ballard yesterday. For the first 80% of his career here, Chris Ballard entered every press conference under the aura that he is the smartest guy in the room. He acts that way. He sounds that way. He looks that way. He talks that way. And he belittles that way. Used to. Then he realized one day that the team he built sucks. 
and he had to start it over, and everybody in town was losing interest and becoming essentially, you know, just not fed up. People are still going to go. He knows that. But he goes out and he drafts a quarterback with huge upside, and people are excited again. And I give him credit for that, for, for saying, for having the humility. Last year, at the end of the year, he finally changed and he showed humility. And now, yesterday, I thought Chris Ballard, for the most part, was the most well-intended person in the room. And that well, that, that good intention and that honesty and transparency, which I think comes from the humility of the way he acted the first 80% of the time that he was here, in combination with the fact he had to realize that his team won four games with the players that he believed in, then backed him into a corner where he finally said, okay, guys, I will be totally transparent and tell you exactly what I'm thinking. And while it's appreciated, it then took leverage and power away from him. Is there a curve on how much credit he deserves for that change, given the fact that, in my mind, he had no other options? It was either adapt or die, effectively. Like, if he continued to go down that same path of being the smartest in the room or building this roster the way that he was, patchwork band-aid after patchwork band-aid, that eventually he was going to be sent out of town? That, that's a very fair point. I mean, that's a, that's a very astute observation. And the answer, in principle, is... Yes, there is a curve there because he was the last to see that, right? Sure. But then again, only he knows the relationship he has with the owner, so he he didn't have to be the first to see it, right? Right. He had to he had to come to that epiphany on his own timeline, which he did. For me personally, being somebody that's essentially in his same age group, I, I will always commend somebody for when, no matter how late it is in life, they realize what they have to do for betterment, and and he I think that he. I will give him that, but I do think that in doing so, what he did was illuminated areas that took leverage away f- from himself, and that's the, the conundrum that they're in. I, look, there, there are a lot of things about this team that I think will be fun. I think people are going to have fun watching Anthony Richardson. I think if you look at Shane Steichen, what, what we don't probably talk enough about is we talk about, like, why is Jonathan Taylor not being prioritized? Is it because he's hurt? Is it because his timeline doesn't add up? Is it because it's all about the quarterback? Or could it be the one thing that we haven't mentioned a lot? Could it be it's because Shane Steichen runs an offense that doesn't prioritize a 1,700-yard back nor need it? You know what I mean? Like, nor need it. Like, it, it, it's one thing... Having a Lamborghini in Miami, literally, I don't mean the franchise, I mean the city itself, is fabulous because there's nothing but like hot women that like Lamborghinis and the weather's like this every day outside and you're never actually driving through snow and ice and there's no chance for your car rusting in the rain. None of it, right? Which is wonderful. But if all of a sudden you move to Philadelphia, that Lamborghini becomes a lot less important to you because it's not as practical. And Shane Steichen is a Philadelphia guy. Not literally, but figuratively, I'm saying like he, he runs an offense that is more based on practicality away from the running back and prioritizes the the foot movement of the quarterback, not the guy behind him. And he's got to be throwing up all over the place about the wide receiver room right now, oh. if, the, if, if that's the case. Well, Anthony Richardson, <laughs> if he throws it up all over the place, has nobody to catch it, right? You mean Andrew Luck? Oh, sorry. That's too far. Too far. You know what I mean? Uh, Kevin Bowen going to join us and he's going to do it next. <laughs> Football is so back. All the contract negotiations, all the press conference, whatever we want to fight or bicker about, we can watch football, college or NFL every weekend from now until February. It's a beautiful thing. Kevin Bowen, nice enough to take some time with us as he always does. You can follow him on Twitter at KBowen1070 here on Query and Company from the DriveHuber.com studios. Uh, KB, I was talking with 
the great Eddie Garrison a little bit before the show started. Uh, I understand it's a lengthy Kevin's Corner. You also host the weekly Kevin's Corner podcast. Uh, Record-setting length on Kevin's Corner or not quite that long? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if it was record-setting, but it certainly was lengthy. I had a little bit of a, a hand raise. I had a little bit of a mishap. You know, instead of Jake Funk, I might have said something else. So. Oh, it was great. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely great. So. Did you edit that out, Eddie, or did you leave that in there? Oh, no, it stayed in there. I've been hearing those Freudian slips for 25 years, Kevin. (laughs) Yeah, so apologies to my mom and dad for that on that uh, that one. But, yeah, I feel like, to to your point, Jimmy, this is like the last big reset before uh, we actually talk about, you know, football games. Okay, so let's begin with this, Kevin. And I don't know the answer to this, even in the times that you and I did the morning show together. I know that you're obviously happily married and a family man. Did you ever have a breakup with a girlfriend like in high school or college? By the way, happy early birthday, Jake. Well, thank you. How how in the hell did you remember that? That's impressive. My birthday is uh, Sunday. But, you know, 51 is kind of like, you know, I mean, you guys knocked it out of the park for me at 50, Kevin. So uh, Shannon and I are going to Modern English at Hi-Fi tonight and going and getting a burger at whatever that place is called, Kumas or whatever, and that's how Kuma. we're celebrating. Yeah, our her birthday was Tuesday. So uh, so right. our combined birthday party is metal rock and a burger at Kumas <laughs> and then watching Modern English at Hi-Fi. This is what yeah, you have to look forward to. Heavy metal time to celebrate 51. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have I have had some breakups. I haven't, yeah, I haven't given them too much thought lately, but yeah, uh, okay. certainly, yeah. During those, one, and just pick one off the top of your head, you don't have to say any names, but there's always one of two people in the breakup that is kind of grasping at straws and like calling friends and analyzing what was said last and looking for a positive of a glimmer of hope that maybe this is still going to work out. And then there's the other one that they have no idea has actually been on Tinder for a month. And that feels like where we are right now. It feels like Chris Ballard thinks maybe there's a chance and Jonathan Taylor actually has been on Craigslist personals uh, since like early, you know, May. Am I wrong? (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I think there is some truth to that uh, Jake Query analogy there, which has certainly brought me back to some, some memories here recently. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth. Obviously, unlike relationships via Tinder, it's not like you can just say, if you're Taylor at least, you can't just say, see ya, and no, I'm I never understand. coming back. There are some ramifications and some consequences for that, but... Yeah, I mean, Ballard, there's part of me that's like, boy, he's going to try and mend it. He's going to try and calm the waters. He thinks it can be repaired. And then, boy, I, I just think Taylor's side looks at it totally differently. But, again, Taylor's side, if you're going to take that route, um, there are major consequences for going down that path here. So I, I don't see anything happening quickly. I don't think any sort of resolution is all of a sudden going to be at a snap of the fingers here. Some side's got to give. And – the fact that this continues to play out in September, I think, might be the biggest issue of it all. Um, this is where once Shane Steichen got hired, once Chris Ballard settled into things off-season mode, you know, where was this in March, April, May, June? You know, it, the the fact that it's played out so publicly when you're into practices and now into regular season action, uh, that is a huge, huge issue. Kev should. Michael Pittman Jr. suddenly get frustrated because he now knows apparently he also won't get a contract extension before next year because the team won four games? Yeah, I think <laughs> it was a four-win quote, Jimmy, but 
I, I like Michael Pittman a lot. I think Michael Pittman should be extended, but let's not act like Michael Pittman's had the same start to his NFL career that Jonathan Sure, sure, had. sure. So I, I don't, you know, if the Colts would have gone into this season and said, you know what, we really like Michael Pittman, we want to see him play this season out, I don't think it would have been the end of the world. I mean, when you compare, again, the guys like Nelson, Braden Smith, Leonard, some other guys that have gotten extensions, I, I don't think Pittman is – no, and Pittman is not at the level that those guys were at through their first you know, three seasons, four seasons of their respective careers. Now, you know, to the four-win comment, I mean, if you go 4-12-1 this year, does that mean that Grover Stewart, Jonathan Taylor, and Michael Pittman are all free agents next year? They don't get extensions and they're all gone? Like, that one doesn't really add up, and I don't know, maybe if that was just – Ballard in a moment where he got pressed and and he didn't really whatever think that one through, but um, I don't think that needs to be like the end all be all of like team success dictates individual futures. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't think it's that that of a black and white sort of term. Kevin, yesterday I thought, and I want your your thought on this. I commend Chris Ballard for what I think was his. Not, not, I mean, that, that sounds kind of silly. I commend Chris Ballard for, I think, being as honest as, as he could be, to be honest with you. And when he was talking about Taylor and, you know, he's like, and why he went on pup, I have no idea the legitimacy of that ankle injury, but I've got to believe Chris Ballard because I think he was pretty upfront just about his frustrations of the whole situation. Now, having said all of that, Ballard took trade leverage away from himself, which in fact devalued Jonathan Taylor by saying, look, he still has ankle issues. Well, if that's the case, then why, why would any team at this point trade for a guy that not only has to set out four games, but we haven't seen him on a practice field and he's allegedly complaining of ankle pain. So I get that, that Chris Ballard has now taken away any sort of leverage from Taylor's standpoint of getting paid elsewhere if a team was willing to trade and extend him. But at the same time, he's also taken leverage away from what anybody's willing to give him as the general manager if, in fact, they decide that they've got to trade him. Did they? Did he overstep himself in that transparency? Well, I think it's a very he said, she said sort of thing. How hurt is Jonathan Taylor? Like, that is the unknown in all of this. Again, according to Taylor, or according to uh, Ballard, he is hurt. You know, he's that's why he's on pup, and he's still feeling ankle pain. He's got discomfort and all the other little phrases that he said. I think if you, you would depress uh, anonymous sources um, within the Colts building, maybe the highest up in that building, they might say differently about their opinion, anonymous, anonymously about the Taylor situation. And then if a Miami trade were to get to the goal line and all of a sudden Miami says, hey, Jonathan Taylor, come do a physical for us. Uh, that tailor might look a lot different from a health standpoint. So that's where it's just beyond confusing about the conflicting nature to what we've had from a tailor standpoint. That's why I'd like to hear from Taylor and get his side of it physically because um, he's the only one that can truly tell us, a guy that is extremely sensitive about his body, where he feels and how he feels and, and all of those things. Um, and, and I would guess – I would add this as well just from a you know tailor from a health standpoint – there had to be part of Taylor, I think, watching that press conference yesterday when saying Johnson or Ballard echoed some sort of phrase of like, you know, I don't put guys out there that are 100 percent or we don't play guys that aren't 100 percent. Clearly, there were times last year Johnson Taylor played football games at less than 100 percent. So if you're Taylor and you're his camp, you're saying, wait a minute, 
last year during an extremely trying season as you benched quarterbacks and had all this chaos, the offensive line was wilting, you know, you hired a guy out of a out of a TV, you know, studio to become the interim head coach. You know, my client was playing at less than 100%. And now all of a sudden you're saying, well, we don't put guys on the field that are less than 100%. Like that to me doesn't add up. Shaquille Leonard's situation, I mean, they shut him down. So it, that is one where I think if you're the Taylor camp, you can look at those comments yesterday in regards to his health and say, why am I not, not being acknowledged more for what I did for the football team in, in gutting it out last year? Kevin Bowen with us. You hear him 7 to 10 a.m. on these very airways with the Wake Up Call with KB and Andy. You can follow him on Twitter at KBowen1070. KB, all jokes aside about three wide receivers not really being enough for the development of a young quarterback, Chris Ballard said yesterday during his press conference that they'll get it figured out, they'll get everything rounded out. I know you and I are in the camp of, well, you know, there are probably opportunities to get this figured out earlier in the offseason, but nevertheless, that's where they're at. As you look at where the roster stands, how much wiggle room is there to add to that wide receiver room and which area is most likely to get impacted if they do add, let's say, two wide receivers to this room? Well, I'd be surprised they added two. I mean, they've got five on the practice squad. That's five of your 17 guys in the practice squad are wideouts. It's obviously a huge number. Um, Chris Ballard typically has looked at the practice squad as just kind of an extension of the active roster. So I think he'll just dip into that. I mean, I know they made one waiver claim for a wideout. That guy went to Arizona. I mean, I I guess you could add a body here in the next week or so, but I don't think we'll see too much, honestly, from an activity standpoint. And I think there's, there's a little bit of a misconception on, like, how much a fifth wideout means. I mean, think about in if Ashton Doolin was healthy. He'd be your fifth wideout. But, I mean, Michael Pittman's going to play 95% of the snaps. Alec Pierce is probably going to play a high, high percentage. And then Downs and Isaiah, Isaiah McKenzie would be your other guys. It's more of, like, emergence not emergency but it's like it's insurance for if Pittman or Pierce were to go down I, I think that's where you're really really lacking right now if one of those two were to go down like just purely quantity or quality standpoint you'd be in major scramble mode in terms of you know what you'd be giving Anthony Richardson so I think that's where you're at I, I know a lot of people you know made a ton of oh my gosh they've got three wideouts on their roster right now to me that had less to do with like oh this is a new phenomenon to be like where have you been for the last couple of years? I mean, wideout issues have always been an issue. If it's not quantity, it's more of just quality. Uh, how many times have you ever walked into a game and said, man, the Colts have got the superior wideout group in this game? Like, that has not been a common theme at all for the Colts here in the past. You can go back to you know, 2019, 20, 2020. I mean, that is not something that has been the norm at all. So, yeah, they got wiggle room certainly to add if they would like. But, again, I think they'll probably rely – a lot of that practice squad. Kevin, a year ago, the Philadelphia Eagles had three receivers, three, that had more than 20 catches in total for the season. Obviously, A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith, right? And then Watkins had 23. After that, it was running backs and tight ends. Zach Paschal had a couple catches. But I guess my question for you, because I don't necessarily pay it this nuanced around the league, is that indicative of, say, Shane Steichen's offense that comes here, or is that kind of the norm no matter what team you were to look at on throughout the league? Good question. I I don't know if I could say it's the norm, Jake. I mean, obviously when you look at Philly last year, they did rotate a lot of running backs, as you mentioned, and then tight end-wise, 
Um, they probably have one of the deeper slash better tight end groups in the league, and then certainly Hurts, you know, does some things with his legs. So I, again, I think it's hard to get like really deep into a fourth or a fifth wideout. I mean, Philly has arguably the best duo of wideouts in the league. AJ Brown and Devontae Smith are going to dominate the amount of targets with that group. Um, whereas the Colts, I don't think Pittman and Pierce, you would look at it in that range. Like I would guess if you look at the top three pass catchers for the Colts this season versus the Eagles, yes, A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, and Quez Watkins, like it's probably going to be the same sort of discrepancy it was or difference it was last year. But for the Colts, I would think Josh Downs is going to be much, much closer to Pittman and Pierce than, I mean, hell. Yeah, Downs you, because be Paris Campbell last to, year. Pierce. I mean, Kevin, Paris Campbell last year, just to look at it, he had 63 receptions. That was second on the team behind Pittman and Pierce. Those are the three that were over 20 receptions. And But it's for the Colts last year, it was receiver, 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 top three. Then tied in, tied in, tied in, running back. Then receiver again with Ashton Doolin. So I, I guess numerically speaking, it's about the same. But clearly, and that was last year with a guy that couldn't throw the ball over seven yards uh, as a statue and rotation of quarterbacks back there. They did go receiver heavy in terms of their ball movement attempts, if that makes sense. You know, how many catches did, did, did do you have in front of you? How many catches did Pierce have last year? Uh, Pierce had forty-one. Yeah, so that's what two a game. Yeah, I, and again, probably to, to your point, it's more of an indictment of where you're at, quarterback. And they're going to need and, clearly. Pierce needs to make a step this year. Clearly. Yeah, he he does. He does. And the thing about Pierce is, you know, he, again, he can offer that some of that big play potential, but if you're going to be a number two wide out and the tight end group is unproven and the running back position is where it's at, you, you need to become much more consistent in other areas. And then Downs. I mean, I think Downs could and should be kind of a three- to four-catch guy per game, which for a rookie, that's a big number. I, I know it doesn't sound like a lot, three to four catches, but that's a lot when you consider rookies. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're Pittman – expect you know double digit targets i would think every game is it weird to come into work now and actually have a game plan oh i feel like we've got a super bowl game plan compared to what we had (laughs) yeah Uh uh-huh yeah the previous morning show it was like we were getting ready for like a jamboree back in junior high and now i feel like i'm walking into like i don't know i've got I've got Lombardi walking into Super Bowl one here. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I was going to say, Jimmy, now... J- Jimmy, would you say preparations through the roof here lately? It is nose to the grindstone, 24-7, 365, KB. Oh, man. You guys are killing me. You make it sound like I'm a slacker. Would you say that I'm a slacker? Is that what we're saying, Kev? No, I, yeah, slacker is, has a very negative connotation with it. I would just say that preparation is not something that you feel is necessary, which... Again, if I had your brain, the filing cabinet, I, I probably would tend to dip my toes into that water more and more. <laughs> Are you trying to say that Jake does not believe the separation is in the preparation? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Yeah, is that a Shane Stein That is a Shane Stein quote. Yeah. It is, yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I would, yes, I, I think that's an accurate statement. The boss is on vacation this week, and I hope he is not listening <laughs> to air checks today. That's all I got to say, right? Um, okay, Kevin, last question for you from my standpoint. You know, We have made so much about this situation with Taylor I get it and the receiver room I mean those two things um give me now that the roster is set you know like Darius Rush was a guy that at the beginning of camp people were very high on him and then he ends up you you know I mean obviously now he's not even here give me a guy that when we were first showing up at Grand Park in Westfield 
you didn't even think twice about that you looked at the final roster and went, you know what, he did have a good camp, and that's a guy that might contribute this year that I never would have anticipated. And also a unit that might be better or an area that might be better than people think. So two, two answers there. Well, I'd say a name that he's not a starter, but you're just kind of one injury away, and that would be on the offensive line, Arlington Hambright. Um, he's a former seventh-round pick of the Bears. Hasn't played since 2020, but he had some versatility in camp, left tackle, some right guard. You know, you, you know how valuable those guys can be, particularly on game day. So I would label him a position that's a little deeper than I thought. Um I, Maybe tight end. I mean, the fact that I, – I know you're banged up right now, but, like, I mean, Jelani Woods on IR and is going to miss the first four games. But I thought Kylan Granson, Drew Ogletree, and Will Mallory, when they were out there, I thought all those guys – and Granson was available pretty much every day. All those guys had some moments. I think that was a group that – it was more of just, like, who's going to make the team was, I think, the question entering camp. And now I'm like, I think there's some real, like, quality depth within that room. So I would say that. Yeah, I'd say that position. Corner is one that I still need to see it when they go up against a real wideout. But there were certainly some moments in camp, and this goes into Darius Rush, where a guy like Jalen Jones, the seventh-round pick, looked really, really good. Now, granted, he's facing arguably one of the worst wideout groups in the league, in my opinion, so that probably plays into it a, a bit. So, yeah, I'd say tight end or corner. Kev, I feel like we already knew the answer to this from the moment that it was Bauer that was the last man standing of the previous regime, and now it's him and Steichen paired together with Anthony Richardson. But Jake mentioned his candid nature and a certain level of, I don't know if I'll go full-scale transparency, but he felt different yesterday than he did in previous press conferences. Um, do you feel like there is ultimate security around him, at least in terms of getting a chance to develop AR? Like multiple seasons, not just one year, like we're talking at least a two-year window him for him to kind of reset things and reorganize around the Colts? Yeah, I think that's a fair bet. Um, you know, as much as some people would want to disagree with that, I, I think that's probably the reality of the situation because I think something you have to worry about, and this is more of a Jim Ursay worry because he's kind of put his organization into this position, but, I mean, if you fire Chris Bowd after the season, that means the new GM walks in the building and the new GM says, I didn't hire that head coach. I didn't draft that quarterback. And now all of a sudden they are in a bit of a lame duck situation. You know, I brought up, I, I never understood why Ryan Grigson was fired the year before Chuck Pagano and Chris Bauer had that awkward one season with, with Chuck. You know, it, it, it was delaying the inevitable. That's not happening here, I don't think. But it, it's very rare in the NFL, I feel like, for a new GM to walk in and say, oh, yeah, I'll take that head coach and I'll take that quarterback and I'll whatever. I'll continue to ride with it. I'll continue to support them, and, and and they're my only kind of hope necessarily. I, I, I'm not going to get a second chance. I know Chicago's dealing with some of that right now. You know, Iberflus and Ryan Poles, like right. they didn't make the selection there of Justin Fields. So um, if I were a betting man, I would say Chris Ballard has a, set, uh, a, a couple of more years at this, certainly. Uh, yeah, I thought there was no question when they drafted Anthony Richardson that what they should have said at the podium was, the Indianapolis Colts select Anthony Richardson, quarterback, University of Florida, and four more years for Chris Ballard. They, they, they literally <laughs> came hand in hand. I mean, to, to use the Jim Irsay line with Ryan Grigson and Chuck Pagano, they're attached at the hip. Richardson and Ballard's tenure seemingly are attached at the hip. And if it goes well, 
kudos to Chris Ballard. Kevin, what do you guys have going on tomorrow on the program? Yeah, we're going to do our normal uh, Friday routine, so that would be Greg Rakestraw and Matt Taylor, I think, I hope. We won't have to dominate the conversation with Jonathan Taylor. Um, and look ahead to uh, Purdue and IU getting things underway uh, tomorrow or, I guess, Saturday afternoon. I don't know if you heard this or not, Kevin, but I had mentioned Indiana going to shock the world. October 14th, they're going to win at Michigan. Mark my words. Really? Lock of the, week, lock of the year. Never, I've never been more sure about anything in my life. Now, was this when you said last year that Ohio State was a lock to win the national title in football? And that, and that, is this that same lock? Boy, I, I've never been happier about being wrong about something in my life than I was with that. Ohio State looked pretty you good. You many, admit. Can you get the money line on IU Michigan? I tried to look for anything on it. I can't, couldn't That's find anything. Thirty point spread. I mean, if Ohio State's a 20, 29 and a half point favorite at on the road. I would think that Michigan at home would be. Here's the thing. 30. Here's the thing. If you actually right now go on any of the devices to try to place a money line wager in August on Indiana to win at Michigan in October, it triggers your phone towards several therapeutic emails that you get from both a counseling and like rehabilitation standpoint, I can assure you. But that said... Is this coming from the guy that bet on a long snapper to win Super Bowl MVP this past February? Kevin, it's all about return on investment, brother. Now, it didn't work out, but a dollar to pay like 1500 bucks, why not? Why not, right? It's like buying a Powerball ticket. Why not? I'm telling you, you mark my words. So you got better you got, Listen, you guys here on October 15th, on October 15th, when when you are thinking to yourself, I could have put down $2 back in August if I'd listened to Jake and bought a plane ticket to whatever tropical paradise I'd like for a weekend of PTO in January, but I didn't do it because I didn't believe that the Indiana Fighting Hoosiers would go up there and stun 108,000 people with an average age of 108 amongst them. I'm telling you right now, Indiana wins at Michigan. That, just Kevin, book it. Lock it. There you go. There's your – there's Max's college fund right there. I was going to say – 529s have been tripled after, after hearing that news. That's right. All right, have fun in the morning. Happy birthday. Thank you. Kevin Bowen joining us on the program. By the way, I just realized this. The hotline here, you know, we have we have no title for the hotline, do we? No. I see I would love nothing more. I, I am let, let me let me tell you something about me. I'm a creature of habit, right? Which is why the morning show at times was difficult for me because while I love I did love doing it, and Kevin and Mark um like you guys i mean it, tons of fun with those guys right um but i'm a creature of habit and that habit was i could not get out of the habit of going to bed at two to three in the morning and when you have to get up at you know five thirty or six that's you know a challenge um one of the things that i'm a creature of habit is 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 when we like i know to say for example we are in the drivehubler.com studio right yep it, it, it comes naturally for me to say the drivehubler.com studio eddie garrison is telling me we need to vacate the drivehubler.com studio because it's break time here in the drivehubler.com studio but it's easy for me to say the, the hotline on the other hand i i, I don't want to just say hotline there's got to be somebody i would love nothing more than for your company to be a part of our hotline wouldn't that be fun It'd be great then, then we could say such and such hotline sounds like you're making a sales pitch so yeah. i will say it every time we have a guest on your business's name is getting out there on the hotline it just, and you can reach out to me, and I'll get you in touch with the right people. Uh, by the way, speaking of the right people, Matt Taylor is one of them, and he's going to join us in just thirty-five minutes. It is Query and Company here, ninety-three-five, one zero seven-five, the fan. Eddie, can we um, play some five seconds of summer? I did when we came back with Kevin. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And and you said they're Australian. Correct. How long have they been around? 
Oh, boy. I don't know. On a 1 to 10 scale, 10 being, you know, like the upper, upper, upper echelon of musicians, their relevance is what? Um, I'd say about a six or a seven. It's, That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a common in like young 20-year-old women, I would say, or mid-20-year-olds. Okay. They had a couple popular hits like throughout. 2011 is when they yeah. formed. Did you guys ever get into Arcade Fire? Who? I know the I know the name of that like that resonates with me, but I no, I don't think so. But I've heard of it. They them were before. kind of in that same era and you know, it's so interesting now and I've had this conversation 50,000 times, but it's just so different now because music is so a la carte, right? I mean, if you don't if it's not within the wheelhouse of what you listen to, and you're not downloading it or listening to that particular like you know streaming thing or you know radio station it, there's no reason for you to to know necessarily ubiquitously like the music outside of your genre it's just different you know but I, but can we do the rest of the show of nothing but 5 seconds of summer where was the concert sure. uh it was at the TCU amphitheater okay and did they have an opening act uh they did it was uh, left me at the altar and uh, well, that's fitting actually with the Jonathan Taylor situation. Did they? <laughs> did they? How many people were there? Perfect night last night for a concert. Ooh, I don't know. Uh, we were downstairs and not downstairs, but we were in the seated area, so I couldn't tell how full it was so, in the lawn. So you were under the cover, so you were not yeah. able to see the super blue moon, bad moon rising. Right? Well, they they did stop between songs one time and told everyone to turn around and look at the moon. That Seriously? is what yeah. you asked me. Anything exciting happened. That was it. It was pretty unbelievable. Was, yeah. You brought it up and we, we talked last night finalizing the so show. So wh- where did you go to look at the moon? Me, it was just driving to Myers, grabbing some groceries last night and saw it in the distance. Looked okay. Very, what, very What beautiful. time was that? 9.33? 9, 9, 9.30. Well, that was perfect timing. That was the, the best time for the super blue moon, bad moon rising. Uh, Matt Taylor in 30. So I'm confused. I know that's stunning. Did they play this last night? Yeah, they did. All right. Just the encore? No, the encore was Young Blood. That was the did song. Did they pass out lattes while this fellow was singing the no. song? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, they did not. It's not terrible. It's fine. No. Have you ever heard of a band called Luna? No. Luna? No. Probably not. Luna was really, I mean, like Flash in the Pan, popular for about five seconds of summer in 1994, but. They are also, I believe, Australian. But I was an intern at MTV. This is my only musical claim to fame. I was an intern at MTV in 1994, and Luna came into the studio. I worked on a show called 120 Minutes, which was the alternative music show. And Luna was a band that came in studio to record an album. And not only did they record the album, but they they recorded their first music video which was just them playing in this little studio. And in the music video, in the background, you can see one person standing there. And that would be my MTV moment of greatness. There you go. Just so you know. Uh, college football getting underway. So I'm confused. This is week one or week zero or week two. What week are we on here? Are you ready to be baffled? I am. We went with week zero last weekend, mm-hmm. and we talked about the hypocrisy of it because it's really week one for a lot of teams. If you go to ESPN.com and you look at the college football schedule – Week one is smushed together with all that happened in week zero, plus this week, 
which really, if we want to dive, and we were joked about, and maybe we're doing too much of this to start the show, if we really want a philosophical dive on this, Jake, for a team like Notre Dame or USC, they're listed in week one, having played San Jose State for the Trojans and Navy for Notre Dame. But then you scroll down a little bit to this Saturday, and their week one matchup is listed as Tennessee State. Yeah, so for they Notre played Dame. two games in week one. Exactly. Time travel. Now, week one is applicable for the Ball State Cardinals to an extent, sure, but sure. not till next week. So week two is actually week one for Ball State, <laughs> which becomes even more confusing. But let me tell you why. Ball State opening up at Kentucky at noon. Ball State is somebody that I've seen. I, I, It's obviously like way early to be able to predict these things, but I have seen a couple of projections that Ball State is thought to be one of the MAC teams that would be playing for the possibility of going to a bowl game, which is cool. Um, you know, I'm a fan of Coach New. I like it, – it is great. I mean, Ball State's great because it's an hour away. You go up. It's not the outrageous ticket prices that you're going to get for Indiana or Purdue, and you can see – you know, some pretty good football of mostly local players playing at the college stage. But Maction. at Kentucky, that's right, September 2nd. <laughs> we can, we have to do Maction because we can't do Pac-12 after dark anymore. Oh, right? I'm devastated. But one last one more ride. Year. One, one last year. ride that's of Pac-12 right. after dark. But September 9th, it's week one for Ball State, essentially, because they are at number one, Georgia. Take it on Georgia at Georgia. Now, I am... Absolutely certain that Indiana is going to win at Michigan. Not as certain that Ball State is going to go and stun the college football world by winning at Georgia. Then they get Indiana State. That's how they open up their first three games. We got to do if, if Ball State. I have a Ball State T-shirt. If Ball State wins at Georgia in Week Two, like I will do, I'll go all out. I'm not going to like vandalize the monument down here and paint. What about cover the spread? Well, they're 26 and a half point dogs against Kentucky this weekend. What 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 are they going to be at, George? 40. My guess would be 49 and a half. You think it'd be that much? Yes. Depending on how they look against Kentucky. That And to be clear, not that I need to save face because I don't, I don't have – I enjoy Ball State as much as the next guy. I have friends that went there. But, like, just doing the math, it's more for Georgia than it is Ball State as to why I would say 40 is the spread there. Yeah, I mean, you wonder if, from Georgia's standpoint – I, I, although, let's be honest, man. Georgia's one of those programs, and I say this is no slight to Ball State. Georgia's freshman class is probably the equivalent of, you know, I mean, they probably have more five-star and four-star players. I mean, Ball State is predominantly three-star recruits. I'm not a big recruiting analyst guy, but you get what I'm saying, right? right? The, the depth of talent. Uh, Indiana, Ohio State coming up on saturday do we know that we don't know their kicker i think it's interesting that tom allen's been held it so close to the vest as to who his starting kicker is going to be which is you know they're going to kick off once right does the kicker see other action do we know yet no i mean (laughs) i don't look the whole thing is on a different plane when you talk about a special teams player being hidden from view or not being revealed. I get the gamesmanship to an extent. We're talking about it, right? We are. I get the gamesmanship on the quarterback side to an extent. I mean, particularly if you have two different style of quarterback. Alabama's doing it right now. They're having a three-quarterback race of unless they announced it yesterday. I missed it. So the quarterback thing's fine. With the kicker, I I don't know. You're going to find out. Write it. Kickoff, I would think. But do you think if it was Taven Jackson, he would have said it was Taven Jackson? I mean, you kind of would think, right? Because it's yeah going to create an uptick of interest in tickets and yeah. Now, did you see the suites they're doing in the end zone? Did we mention that? Yesterday? You mentioned it yesterday. I yeah, the glorified tables with down. chairs and a so, canopy. 
So, so Indiana, and, and they've done a lot with that facility. I get it. But I've always felt this way about Indiana. If your main selling points about your football program are that you have the world's largest flagpole and a rock, probably not like real strong suits. They should actually, Indiana should just go all in and start campaigning itself as we are the losingest college football program in the country, right? Just go all in. Just just embrace it, right? Embrace it. And look, they're, they're fun. It, Bloomington's great in the fall. For years, Indiana would get a couple of games on ABC in October just because of the beauty of the aerial shots, quite frankly. And Bill Mallory had really good teams. And they've had good teams since. So we know... It is it is possible, right? And especially as we talked about with Don Fisher with the transfer portal, they're going to have some players. But how are those players going to mesh? How are they going to? Do they have enough time to figure out even how those players are going to contribute? I, you know, those are all question marks for certain. But their schedule for Indiana, starting at Ohio State or, or with Ohio State, I should say, in Bloomington, coming up on Saturday, three thirty kick. Then Indiana State, Louisville, Akron. They've got to get as Don Fisher was talking about, and he's right. They got to get at least two of those those next three games, and you would think that Indiana State and Akron they would get if they can get Louisville and pick up three of those, that really helps them. And then they go at Maryland, and then they get the win at Michigan. So then there's four right there, right? At Rutgers, Penn State, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan State, Purdue. That's how they round out. But they've got to get three of those first four games to, to not only to get things going in the right direction, but also to pack the end zone suites. And this is how you've got tents, you've got temporary tents over folding chairs. You need to make sure that those those things people are getting their money's worth. For IU, this is not news. The bar is where it is. Yeah, it's on Kirkwood. <laughs> be, be, it's where be, everybody goes by the second yeah, well quarter. Played. That's the problem. Well played. Third quarter, but I digress. Uh, be competitive enough to be in the bowl conversation to get to six wins. And I've done this exercise the last three seasons now, and I love Tom Allen, and I love IU football. But you're right. It all is decided amongst how they do in these first four or five games. They're able to scrum together those three critical wins before they get into the rest of the Big Ten schedule. Because then you're really starting to going through the simulation of can they pick up a win there? Can they beat Michigan State? Can they take care of Purdue? Like there's aspects of it where even on the easy end, and that's not easy, but even on the easy end of their Big Ten schedule, it's hard to make up ground if you stumble in non-conference. Purdue taking on, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, Purdue taking on Fresno State, that's a noon kick coming up on Saturday. I'll be honest, Jimmy, I don't know, I mean, disingenuous to sit here and say I know a lot about Fresno State, except for that it's been a good program. I mean, that's typically a that's a decent non-conference game. Then at Virginia Tech. Now, Vatech is a tough place to play, but that program has been down. Um, so, you know, the, and then Syracuse is is tricky. I think Syracuse is actually pretty good. I think they're very well coached. So for Purdue, again, you would like to get probably two of those front three, but those are three pretty big challenges for Ryan Walters. Doesn't seem like it, I realize. But at Vatech, if that game was in West Lafayette, I'd feel a lot better about it for Purdue. But that's a tough place to play. Last year, and I know for Purdue fans, it was a year across both sports of head-scratching, frustrating memories at times. 
the Syracuse game on the road was a wildly competitive game that I guess maybe was ignorance on my end. I didn't anticipate it. There were multiple avenues where Purdue probably could have closed that game out. But you're right. The same thing goes when they're at Virginia Tech. I mean, this is the inaugural era for Coach Walters, and you're wanting to be able to establish yourself as where expectations are for Purdue football. Yeah, Fresno State at Vatech, then Syracuse at home and Wisconsin at home. I mean, in the same vein, even though they're ahead of where IU football is, in that same vein, you want to establish yourself with consistency in those first two weeks before you start revenge game, I guess, from a year ago against Syracuse this time at home and then in the Big Ten conference play. So let me tell you what I heard and where we stand on the constant revolving door of the Big Ten and the Pac-12, as we talked about, the Pac-12 after dark, right? Yes. Big Ten um, after dark in 2024. That's right. So when Oregon... Okay, so I had a conversation with somebody who, who's involved in the process, okay, who, who's in who is plugged in to the point of being on the conference calls and in the meetings about all of this expansion. And UCLA and USC, and I've mentioned all of this before, so my apologies if I'm repeating myself, but I do think probably there's there's somewhat of a different audience today than, than people that heard me talking about this at 7.30 in the morning, etc. Um, when the Big Ten brought in USC and UCLA, it was all about football. They wanted USC football. And the Big Ten wanted, if you look at the Big Ten Network, you know, Jim Delaney, when he came up with the Big Ten Network, I mean, that was brilliant foresight thinking, okay? And they, the reason they went and got Rutgers in Maryland a billion years ago was because they wanted the New York City and the Washington, D.C. television markets. Now, that's not to say that people in New York City or Washington, D.C., certainly New York City. If you were to stop a 1,000 people in New York City walking around Greenwich Village, like two of them are Rutgers fans, and that's because their dad coaches there, right? Yeah. (laughs) But by picking up Rutgers, you then had reason for the New York City metropolitan area cable networks to put the Big Ten network on because they want to make sure that households in New Jersey and Staten Island and you know all around that might have people that go to Rutgers are able to watch the games. So you've gotten the New York City market. They already had the Chicago market, obviously. Then you go to Maryland and you pluck them because you want the Washington, D.C. market for the same reasons I just talked about with, with New York City. And they did that. So then the Big Ten said, you know what? The Pac-12 tried to replicate what we did by doing their own television network, but where the Pac-12 aired is they did not secure the proper penetration. And by that, that means number of households you're getting into by the number of cable networks that are picking you up. I think at one time it was like 28% penetration, meaning that 72% of households didn't get the Pac-12 network. Okay? Now... I realize that once you get into the satellite television and the streaming services, it doesn't matter. Anybody can get it. I get that. But you still are wanting it to be an automatic channel that's available for people when they're sifting through. So they wanted Los Angeles. In the same way you have recruiting pipelines on the coaching side of things, you want pipelines of viewership. You want visibility, right? Yes. Yes. So they wanted Los Angeles. So they go to USC and they're like, look, you are one of the five biggest college football brands in America. We want you in the Big Ten, and we can guarantee you 
I think it was 30 million or 40 million. I can't remember the exact number. And of television revenue, more than you're getting from the Pac-10. And USC said, you know what? We'll do this. But for the for the point of just like schedule balancing and travel purposes and whatever else, we need UCLA to piggyback with us. And that also keeps our rivalry intact. Great. Buy one, get one free. Bring UCLA with you. So then they looked at it and they said, okay, now we have 16 teams. Let's try to get to 20. Their next pairing they went after were Virginia and North Carolina. Strong academic schools in the ACC, national brands. Virginia, an elite academic institution. But again, you're getting back into that southern footprint, and now you're trying to get maybe even like the Atlanta-Charlotte audience, right? And North Carolina and Virginia were very interested, but at the last minute, they had that contractual deal with the ACC that they could not break away from. So the Big Ten then said, okay, we're going to take one of two pairs, either Arizona-Arizona State or Oregon-Washington. And Arizona, again, Arizona's a great football, or excuse me, a great basketball school. The Big Ten in this expansion deal didn't care about basketball. Kansas was of no interest to them. Kentucky was of no interest to them. They want football schools. So, But Arizona, Arizona State, they wanted just partially because of the national brand of both of them. And then again, you're getting Phoenix, which is a big market. You're, you know, you're getting the Southwest, essentially. And the pairing part is key for me, too, because even though Correct. USC brought it up of wanting their rivalry, everybody's talking about, and it is true, traditions are in some way being lost with a lot of this expansion, but when you're keeping two key schools that have significance against one another, that expands the footprint in its own right Correct. as well. And, and again, it works out to, and this is way above my pay grade, but if you were to do a flow chart and the travel that teams would do in terms of games and everything else, you, you could, it's easier to work that alongside split revenue. There's all kinds of things that go into it. But they basically said Arizona, Arizona State, or Washington, Oregon. Arizona, Arizona State jumped to the Big 12. And so they said, okay, fine. Big 12 beat us there, so we'll go with Oregon, Washington. That settled itself out. Oregon said, listen, we're bringing more money because of the Nike money that comes in. Our marketing is such that we want a higher amount than what you are offering us. I think it was it was either 30 or 40 was the revenue annually that they were being told they were going to get and Oregon said we'll come and bring Washington with us we'll talk Washington into it but we need up front I think it was 20 million more something like that and the Big Ten said fine so they now had Oregon Washington then it came down to Jimmy two spots because they want to get to 20 those two spots were lock stock and barrel going to be Stanford and California Stanford and Cal we're kind of stuck because Stanford and Cal are not going to go into the Mountain West. Stanford is not going to be in the same academic – it is not going to put itself in the same academic grouping with no disrespect to it of San Jose State University. They're just not going to do – Stanford is the most elite academic institution in America, in my opinion, but it is certainly the most elite non-Ivy in America. Now, what the Big Ten did is they basically said we need to – of the three school of the following three, Cal Stanford or Notre Dame. They talked to Notre Dame. They said to Notre Dame, the invitation is open for you to join the Big Ten. You have a standing invite. And there was talk at one point that Notre Dame was going to come after a year 
once everybody thing had been settled out, Notre Dame was going to want to come in, going to be the one to come in. But Notre Dame sat down at the table with NBC. I don't say this factually, but I'm pretty certain this is how it went down. the The Big Ten expansion and the Pac-12, you know, blend is a Fox-driven deal. The Big Ten Network is partnered with Fox, and Big Ten games now are on Fox Television, FS1, etc. So that's your, to put it simply, Jimmy, it's the Fox Television Conference. With the exception of the new, and we might get to this, so I don't want to put the cart before the horse, but with the exception of the NBC Saturday Night package they're launching, correct? That's going to be just Big Ten games, if I'm not mistaken. Well, so hang on. Sure. I'll tell you what I was told. So then, the yes to an extent yes then you have the sec which already has its own deal with like cbs yes right and then the big 12 i can't remember which one the bit one of them is espn i can't remember if that's the sec or acc the big, is is one of them but okay, acc is definitely acc is definitely espn yes. and then i think maybe big 12 is, is blended in there yes. as well yeah so it came down to conferences or, or to television nbc went to notre dame and said listen if you are willing to play a majority of your games on primetime NBC, then you don't need to be in a conference. We will make NBC will be basically the note like as it's been. Correct. So NBC said, you know what? We have enough in Notre Dame that we don't. You guys sit there and and nitpick all you want and pick the carcass. You know, be the hyenas and come in and pick the carcass right. all you want. We are still going to get the bulk of the meat on Saturday night primetime with Notre Dame under lights on NBC. As long as we have, you know, 70% of our schedule that you're allowing us to play at night on with Notre Dame, then ESPN, you take the ACC. Fox, you take Big Ten. CBS, you take SEC. We'll take Notre Dame. And because of that, Notre Dame went, well, hell, we don't need anybody. Yeah. So Notre Dame is more than likely – not even more than likely. At this point, Notre Dame is set. They are going to stay independent in all of this. Now, the only thing that would cause Notre Dame to jump, Jimmy, college is if playoff. the college football yes. playoff says, yes. if you're not, if you're independent, you can't come in. I, I can't see that happening because USC is not going to break their tradition of playing Notre Dame. And eventually, you know, I, I don't know the last few years how it's been, but Michigan State, Purdue, Michigan, the, the old – they're going Notre Dame is automatically going to have enough rivalry games on its schedule of big time powers that they are going to keep themselves in the playoff conversation. Notre Dame has no reason no. based on its national brand to ju- the other schools all this is the bottom line. The other schools all whether you're talking about Oregon, whether you're talking about Arizona, whether you're talking about Maryland, whether you're talking about Rutgers, all of the other schools had reason to jump conferences to cement national branding for themselves. Notre Dame has national branding automatically and has for 100 years. Advantage Notre Dame. But my question for you after all of that is simply this, and that is once the Big Ten, if now Cal and Stanford are in conversation with the ACC, which that seems to be back on the front burner, if the Big Ten then still needs two, who do they go after? Because you have the academic side of it that comes into play. And – it got to the point where I could, that's the other thing I should mention. The Big Ten had the discussion of if we get Cal and Stanford, and then for some reason Notre Dame two years from now decides they need to be in, then who do we bounce? And that was going to be Rutgers or Nebraska. It was going to be one of those two. Rutgers, they 
because now, I mean, sure, they had the New York market, and I think Nebraska would have been the one in the most trouble because they're not part of the same academic league that the rest of the Big Ten is in, and they don't bring a big television market. And their football program is not the marquee national brand that it was 25 years ago. But who would you have brought in? I mean, outside of cannibalizing somebody from the Big 12, I I, I don't know. There's not a key list I, correct. on my mind if I would have brought You run it. out, right, of teams that you're – I mean, Pitt was one that I always thought kind of made good sense because it's in the region. It's a decent academic school. But if the ACC is sports. stabilizing itself I, I with Stanford correct. and Cal – correct. As of right now, August 31st, 2023, I don't have an answer, but it's because it appears there's a brief quiet of the storm of where conference realignment is right now. That said, that's happened the last two seasons. Once the college football season has started, not a ton of public talks about conference realignment, but then the summertime arrives and everybody is prining for more power and more power. You're right. And then the discussion shifts. So is this over? No. It Maybe it is 18 teams in 2024, but conferences are not going to stop trying to pick apart one another as long as they have the opportunity to do so. I know two certainties. One of them is that Indiana is going to win at Michigan on October 14th, and the other is that Matt Taylor is next. Now, Eddie, you were just telling me that again. Let me let me write this down. Can you read? Can you say that to me, please? So, our conversation right now with Matt Taylor, the voice of the Colts, is yep. brought to you by Shelby Materials, the, the concrete, concrete and aggregate experts. Mm-hmm. Matt, did I get that right? The concrete and aggregate experts, and Shelby aggregate Materials, experts. bringing us Matt Taylor, and that's Shelby Materials, right? Yes, sir. The concrete and aggregate experts, Shelby Materials. Matt, how much aggregation do you, do you do yearly? Would you say? Uh, you know what I am. I am a you know just like Shelby Materials. I am an expert at aggregating. Um, you know, I've aggregated my garage floor. I've aggregated my kitchen sink. I've aggregated uh, you know my TV. I'm not even sure what aggregation is. You were using Shelby Materials while doing it, though, Matt. Right? That's that's right. Of if course. I needed to aggregate anything, I would call myself and the experts at, at Shelby Material. You know what Absolutely. one of the key ingredients is in concrete? Uh, would be, I don't know, water maybe? Well, that would be cement, and which now the Colts roster is at least for the time being cemented. We know that much yesterday, or you know, Chris Ballard talking about it. Matt, we've talked so much about Jonathan Taylor. I'm not going to put you in that position to do that as the voice of the Colts. So let's focus on the guys, and I mean that as no disrespect to the talent of Jonathan Taylor. But let's focus on the guys whose names you're going to be calling here for the first four games. Um, what jumped out at you when the roster was completed and you looked over it? Give me a name that when you looked over the roster, you thought to yourself, that makes sense because I hadn't necessarily heard of that guy, say, a year ago, but I called his name an awful lot in the preseason, and that guy flat out earned his spot. Hmm. Good question. Good question. Although admittedly um, in the trenches, you're not necessarily calling guys names. I get it. Yeah. I mean, I think I, that's probably a good place to start. I mean, just kind of from a roster mechanic standpoint, I would guess just a little bit surprised that you're keeping, you know, six defensive tackles, at least initially. Um, and, you know, I thought, you know, a couple of waiver claims would happen yesterday and that might be one of those areas in the roster that you might rob from, if you will, to maybe, you know, add an extra receiver or an extra offensive lineman, just because I think it's going to be tough, you know, on a given Sunday to play with six defensive tackles. I mean, not 
not six defensive tackles will see action in an NFL game, right? I mean, especially when you have two guys that you rarely want to take off the field, you know, not for more than just a couple plays here and there for for a breather in Grover Stewart and DeForest Buckner. Um, and I was I was surprised, maybe surprise is not the right word, but just the fact that they kept five tight ends initially, you know, I think they kind of had the idea in the back of their mind that we're going to have to place Jelani Woods on IR, but he needs to make our roster so that he can come back when he's healthy after four games. Um, you know, Will Mallory's probably a guy that had the Colts cut him initially, you know, waived him and, and subjected him to waivers across the NFL. He was probably a guy that they weren't going to get back. You know, he's a draft pick. Um, and I know Darius Rush didn't come back either, but I thought Will Mallory showed some really good things towards the end of training camp. Uh, you know, I know a lot of other teams were high on him in the draft. And so had the Colts cut him loose or waived him, he was probably the guy they weren't going to get back on the practice squad, which kind of, you know, lumped into their decision from a roster mechanic standpoint to, to keep him. Um, and just the fact that, and you guys, I know, I'm sure you've, you've talked about this uh, inevitably, but the fact that, you know, initially only four receivers make the roster. And I thought, all right, you know, it's, it's tough to kind of figure out who emerged of that group of Jawan Winfrey and Brashad Perriman and Mike Strawn and Amari Rogers, so on and so forth. But the fact that they just didn't keep any of them, at least for a day, you know, like you have a stay of execution for at least a day before we go out and make some other moves on the waiver wire. The fact that they didn't keep anybody as a fifth receiver was a little bit surprising. Um, but, you know, Chris Ballard said yesterday, this is fluid. We're working through a lot of stuff, and I, I still suspect there's going to be a lot more movement between now and, and next Sunday when the Colts play the Jags. And to be fair, Matt, we've seen this in the past. Can't they always just ele- – if need be, can't they just elevate off the practice squad a receiver each weekend and then go back to the practice squad and maneuver there? I mean, that's not unprecedented, right? Well, they can, and you're, you're exactly right. They can, and they do have a lot of options. I mean, right now they have five receivers on their practice squad. So I know that, again, raises the question from, from some of the fan base. Like, why why wouldn't at least one of those guys be on the active roster? And I think it's it speaks to, you know, your point there. The, the only thing that is a little bit of a hiccup in, in that thought is that, you know, if you bring in that fifth receiver, and let's say it's, you know, Amari Rogers or it's, well, let's just use a Rodgers because he does have returnability, right? He's got some speed and can play on special teams in the return game. If you if you want to use him in that capacity or if you bring him up to the active roster with that in mind, you can only do that three times. He can only come off the practice squad to the active roster three times before you have to make a decision on him, either to you know, have him be on your active roster for the rest of the year or you have to, to cut him. So that's a little bit of a wrinkle into it. Um, but the Colts do have a lot of options, so they can, let's say, take receiver one one week, uh, or the, you know the first three weeks, and then move on to receiver two, or you know kind of sprinkle it and 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 you know have it be a variety of guys that are up one week and not you know on the practice squad the next week. So it, it is kind of confusing, and it's <laughs> you know the Colts obviously in, in a lot of flux with with several different positions on their roster going into the season. You know, offensive lines in flux. We talked about receiver. I still think running backs in flux. You know, the Colts are still continuing to look and see, you know, what might be available to them around the NFL. Just considering Zach Moss's injury and if, if he's 
you know, is he 100% healthy after that broken arm back in early August? You know, you just don't know. So um, there's a lot of things I think the Colts are working through right now to seeing, hey, can we get 1% better at some of these other positions that got cut around the NFL? Are they just marginally better than what we have right now to give us that slight edge going into games? Voice the Colts, Matt Taylor with us on Query and Company. Matt, when you look at the 53-man Let's go non-JT, non-Anthony Richardson division. Who has the most to prove this season, both whether it's long-term future with the Colts or just life in the NFL in general? Who has the biggest opportunity to prove something this year? Man, you guys are coming with the tough ones. Oh, man, put me on the spot. You know, I would say it's – I would just say it's a big year for, you know, across the board that entire offensive line, right? I mean, I know those guys have – a big chip on their shoulder after what happened to them last year or collectively, you know, just the output they displayed with 60 sacks allowed and all the quarterback pressures and all that stuff. And, you know, kind of taking a big step back in the running game. I just think Tony Sperano's come in and I think he has to, to some degree simplified some things. I think the communication's better, but I just think there's just too much talent across the board there for them to have back-to-back, you know, down years or subpar years based on the talent and, quite frankly, you know, the, the money and the investment that the Colts have with those, you know, five starting offensive linemen. And I think you got to lump Bernard Ryman into that as well. I think you have four really above-average offensive linemen. We'll see with Will Fries, right, because this is going to be the first year that he's – I know he started games last year, but the first year, like, he's the guy at right guard and – I think he's able to kind of take some steps. But Ryman looks the part. I mean, he looked really, really good in the offseason, really, really good in training camp, uh, and certainly in those preseason games. He's bigger. I just think his confidence right now is through the roof. I just think he's in a really, really good spot. Um, So I think Anthony Richardson's going to help tremendously in the RPO game, the running game. Um, I mean, I think the sacks are going to be down certainly because of his mobility, right? He's not a statue quarterback back there. I mean, we saw in the preseason, you know, he turned like what should have been a sack, you know, a five-yard loss into a 15-yard gain in the first down. So I think just his uh, ability in the backfield is going to help that offensive line with some of their struggles last year. But, you know, again, you know, we, we kind of talked about this earlier this week, myself and, and Rick Venturi on our, on our podcast. You know, there's, there's just certain things – going into every NFL season that you just don't know until you play a regular season game because the intensity ramps up, the sophistication ramps up, it's full contact, it's full go, right? Quarterbacks aren't in red jerseys. You're going to see blitzes. You're going to see stunts. Everything is for real, right? And so, like, you go back to last year, the Colts had a very clean training camp, right? They were healthy, uh, Matt Ryan looked really, really good. The defense looked really, really good. I mean, they got everything out of training camp that they were supposed to, and still it led to a slow start, right? You tie the, the Texans, you get blown out by the Jaguars. No one really saw, based on how the preseason went, no one really saw 4-12-1 coming. So it's just one of those things that, you know, the offensive line looks good right now, but until you play a regular season game, there's always going to be this, like, degree of uncertainty and unknown. It's like Christmas Day where you unwrap all your toys, you see how good they are, you see how they perform, and you say, all right, this group is ahead of schedule, and they're kind of where we thought they were going to be, 
And then this group where we thought they were really solid, maybe we got more work to do. So that's just the nature of the business going into the regular season. Matt, in terms of other teams in the division, you know, it's interesting. It's an interesting division because it appears as though Jacksonville is ready to take another step. And then you have Houston, Tennessee's kind of a wild card, and Indianapolis and Houston obviously are kind of starting all over again. But if you were the coaching staff of one of those three other teams, what's the area of the Colts that you are basically licking your chops to exploit? The area that is the one that is keeping Chris Ballard up at night because it's like, man, that's where we are the most susceptible. Not named Anthony Richardson since that's the unknown. Well, I think, you know, on both sides of the ball, if you start on offense, you know, it kind of piggybacks off of what I just said. The offensive line is really, really good and above average with their starters. I was going to say, as long as they Uh, stay healthy, right? Yeah, health is going to be huge right there. I mean, I know that's something you can't control, but, you know, I I think that has to mean if if I am – if I'm a a defensive coordinator and I see, you know, Ryan Kelly out or if I see Braden Smith out, I mean, you look at – the five backup offensive linemen for the Colts, four of them have never played a regular season game in the NFL. Now, they got a couple of rookies. You know, I know they, they signed a rookie yesterday uh, off of waivers. They brought in Blake Freeland in the draft. There's nothing you can do about that. Just because you have inexperience doesn't mean that you're not going to pan out in the NFL, right? You have I me, mean, Chris Ballard said it yesterday. You have to become veterans somehow some way i mean it's that old adage when you're looking for a job like how do i get experience you're looking for experience how do i get experience if you're not going to give me experience right so that that's that's kind of the the chicken and the egg thing there with the colts offensive line but that's the reality of it right they've got a lot of youth and a lot of inexperience backing up their starting core up front and then defensively i would say just their ability to rush and cover and i think those two things obviously go hand in hand and you know, last year the Colts had 44 sacks, which was a really good number, right? Second most uh, amount of sacks in franchise history, most for the franchise since 2005, but were they the most, you know, timely sacks? Did they come at the best parts of the game where they were changing the game and forcing strip sacks and, you know, getting a team off the field inside the red zone? Like, they, it was a, it's a good number but it obviously didn't help them win a lot of football games last year, right? You get what I'm saying. And so I want to see Quiddy Pay and Dio Dangbo take those next steps in year number three, and th- this team needs them to. They need both of those players to turn into double-digit sack guys for the health of the pass rush, and the pass rush has to help the young secondary cover and hold up and, and be viable when you're talking about Daryl Baker Jr. and – you know, Dallas Flowers and, you know, Kenny Moore is back there, but Jalen Jones is going to have, you know, he's going to play a role inevitably in the secondary this year. And then you've got, you know, again, Nick Cross, he's going to be a versatile player as a safety. He can play some nickel if they need him to, but there's just a lot of youth. And again, kind of going along with the offensive line depth, there's some inexperience there. So you want to do, what you can up front to help those guys in coverage. Maybe play some more press man-to-man on the outside. You know, don't let a quarterback get to the, 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 you know, the climax of his drop on a three-step drop or a five-step drop and know where to go with the football right away because the guy's open. So I think rush and cover are, you know, those are two, my two biggest things on defense that I'm going to be worried about or most anticipating seeing 
coming up in week number one to see how those two elements on defense complement one another. Voice the Colts, Matt Taylor with us. Matt, we know the John Taylor situation is what it is. We know it's a prove-it year for the offensive line, and you could argue a prove-it year for some of the wide receiver room that's there right now. When you look at Anthony Richardson and how this is a measurement year for him, all the reps he's going to get, learn from the tape, and try not to make the same mistake twice, where should the curve be in evaluating him? Because I look at Chicago, and I'm still not fully sold on Justin Fields, but despite the fact they were horrendous last year in a lot of areas, they feel like they saw enough from him in a second year that year three is going to be his leap forward. I know we're a year behind that on his calendar for Anthony Richardson, but where is the evaluation bar for him given what's on the roster right now in terms of uncertainty? Yeah, I mean, to me, and you know, this is probably a better question for Shane Steichen, but to me, I just want to see growth week by week, and I want to see you know, the mistakes that he's making in week one and week two. I want to see those eradicated and not show up in weeks eight and nine and so on and so forth. And just those big areas that we use to evaluate quarterbacks, you want to see him improve in those regards as well, right? You got timing, you got accuracy, and you can kind of lump those two things together. It's pocket presence, um, and it's also just kind of like touch and feel and and having a high football IQ. The, the biggest thing for Anthony Richardson this year for me is just to keep the Colts out of bad plays and disastrous plays. You know, he's going to make mistakes. It's going to be up and down, and he's going to have wow moments. There's no question about that. You know, I, I agree with what Rick says. He is destined for greatness. It's just a matter of, you know, what that looks like, to what degree, and how soon he can achieve that. But early on, I just want to see him make good decisions. And, you know, like keep the Colts out of third and long. Uh, don't force the ball when it shouldn't go into a specific area. You know, for him, what I've seen so far is that things kind of get cloudy for him. When, when he struggles in, in, in uh, accuracy, he's the most inaccurate when things kind of get cloudy and the timing of the play is off or he's got somebody in his face. And we saw that in Buffalo, right, with a little hitch in his throw, and then it was picked off. You know, that It kind of came on a play like that. So I just want to see him, you know, know when to fold him, right, know when to squeeze a ball into a tight area and when not to, not turn the ball inside your own territory, not turn the ball over in the red zone when you're guaranteed at least three points that's going to, you know, put you over the top or keep you in a game. So I just want to see those benchmark things from a quarterback. I want to see those things improve steadily week by week with Anthony Richardson, grow in comfort. You know, I think body language is going to tell us a lot, but I don't think there's any sort of like benchmark statistical areas that he has to achieve in order for us to say this is a success or his rookie season was a failure, right? I don't think there's a certain amount of wins. I don't think there's a certain amount of like completion percentage he's got to reach. It's just get better every single day, file all of these experiences away in real time, get better. And I don't think there's any reason why Anthony Richardson can't be the biggest strength of this team on offense. And certainly, I mean, you talk about Jonathan Taylor now that he's not here. Anthony Richardson is the biggest, you know, keep you up at night type of a player if you're a defensive coordinator, a guy that's going to you're going you're gonna to be up at, at 3 a.m., uh, if you're a defensive coordinator for the Jacksonville Jaguars, trying to make sure Anthony Richardson single-handedly doesn't wreck the game and single-handedly doesn't beat me. 
Matt, before the season begins, next time we have you on, and I always appreciate your visits, brought to you, by the way, by Shelby Materials, the concrete and aggregate experts. Um, I'm going to go through the roster next time we talk to you, and I don't mean this condescendingly at, at all towards you or the players, but there are some names on there that people are not household names with them just yet that are a little bit tricky, so we're going to get the official Matt Taylor pronunciation <laughs> guide next time. Does that work? All right. I like it. No, right. that's it. That's it. I mean, you're – you get paid to get the names right. That's so right. Let's do it. All right, do we'll it. do it next time, Matt. I appreciate it. Have a good weekend, all right? Although, obviously, today's Thursday, but I'm out Friday. So, have a good weekend, all right? Oh, man, good for you. Congratulations. Well, I'm off working. <laughs> I got to go to the IndyCar race. All right, fair enough, fair enough. Well, I'll talk to you guys next week. I appreciate you. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Matt man. Taylor joining us. Whoops, excuse me. Matt Taylor joining us. Yeah, I, I almost forgot. Today's not Friday. Um, feels like it is because we're talking so much football stuff, which is – I mean, that's the beauty of it, as you talked about. It's it's here, right, Jimmy? Football football is here. Labor Day weekend, big roaring, going to take place on the west side. We'll tell you more about that coming up in about 30. We'll continue the conversation about the Colts as well. It is Quarry & Company, 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. Now, Eddie, how many concerts would you say you've been to? Two. Yeah, two. I'm sorry. This is not the place. In your life, you've been to two concerts? Two. As well. Three. That's not true. Three. You've been to which ones? I have no shame. In sync, but that was it. Like that was very young. Um, Look, we've all been to concerts when we were younger. That I mean, that, no, no, no shaming here. Um, Bob Welcome Week at IU, and um, Thomas Rad. I took my wife to go see at uh, Ruoff. I know it's not Ruoff anymore, but that's my three. Okay, so we're way up against it, right, Eddie? I'm going to list for you guys my the concerts. I, I tried to make a list the other day. I'm going to one tonight, so I'm going to list You've for you. You've been to more concerts in the last month than I have in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly us combined. That's probably true. I'll give you I'll give you a rundown, and we'll pick out which ones you guys want to make fun of, right? Uh, Matt Hagen, by the way, funny car driver and funny guy, going to join us in 30 minutes. We'll talk a little bit about the upcoming U.S. Nationals. But yesterday, Chris, Dow- Chris Ballard spoke, and most importantly, we will – Kind of break down what he had to say, and we'll do it next. Chris Ballard shed some light yesterday on the Jonathan Taylor situation. Uh, No new development from that, but we'll let you hear a little bit from Chris Ballard and perhaps decipher what he had to say. Todd Meyer earlier accused me of being too Freudian with it, so it'll be a little more direct. How's that? Um, We'll do that in just a second here. Concerts I've attended. You guys feel free to make fun of me on any of these. I'm giving you total permission, right? Um. I probably am missing some. Okay. But this is over the course of, of a long time. But Real quick, is this like a note that you've added to over the years? Or is this just like from memory that you did during the break? No. No. Good question. I was on a flight recently and was like sitting there bored on the plane and was like, I'm going to try to remember every concert I'm into. And I put okay. on my phone and put them out. Uh, Lionel Richie, Tina Turner, Steve Miller Band, Guns N' Roses, Barry Manilow, Joe Walsh, Genesis, Culture Club, Freddie Jones Band, Ringo Starr, All-Stars, Public Enemy, Too Short, Bruce Springsteen, Black Crows, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, Melissa Etheridge, Sticks, Kid Rock, Rolling Stones, U2, Tears for Fears, Head in the Heart, Ray LaMontagne, Motley Crue, Van Halen, Neil Diamond, Fleetwood Mac, Madonna, Noel Gallagher, Modern English, and Rat. I don't have a problem with the list. I left out two, by the way, so I guess my concert total is five. I went and saw... Took my wife to see Ben Folds when we were in Chicago. Okay. And then I saw Ed Sheeran and sometime in the 2010s. Oh, you know what? I I failed to mention, if, if you throw in the Iowa race this year. I was about I to also, ask you about that. I was yeah. like, didn't you go so see yeah, somebody recently? I saw Carrie Underwood, Kenny Chesney, 
because um, I stayed for all of them. Carrie Underwood, Kenny Chesney, uh, Zach Brown Band, and then I did not see Ed Sheeran. He was there, but he played after the the race itself. I did not pay to see this individual, but I guess I've also seen Shaq DJ once. Really? That's cool. On Vegas. supposed to do it here, it was awesome. right? I know he was. Was he good? Uh, yes, he was great. It was awesome. Uh, Chris Ballard yesterday met with the media. Eddie, was there any on that list that, that jumped out at you as you want to make fun of me for? Um, no, I think the two that you had me point or pull are the two that I would probably have mentioned myself. What do you mean that I had you pull? Uh, the audio that you had me pull. The two cuts. No, no, no. I'm talking about the list of concerts. Oh, list concerts? of concerts. My bad. My bad. You, you, you said Chris Ballard. My bad. Uh, no. Okay. I wouldn't make fun of you for any of those. It is quite a sight, by the way, to see Shaq DJ. Like he's already a massive human, but just jumping up and down, going crazy. Like he's, yeah, he's... Was Bon Jovi on that list? Have you seen him? I've never seen Bon Jovi. Never seen Bon Jovi. Which is kind of along the lines of some of those that I mentioned, right? Um, you know, Shaq, when Shaq was in college at LSU, and certainly this is no secret if you watch him now, people that I had a friend that went to college in Louisiana, not at LSU, but at, in Louisiana at the same time as Shaq. And he was beloved. I mean, he was because he was just known as a super fun, outgoing life of the party kind of guy. So that is not surprising in any way, shape or form. Uh, Ballard yesterday, by the way, met with the local media. Once the roster was set, had a lot to say, including this is an interesting thing that ended the press conference. And I'll give Ballard credit. I thought that he was pretty upfront. I thought he was pretty transparent. People have asked, like, hey, has Jim Mercer kind of neutered Chris Ballard? I, I don't know that I would go that far. There have been times where I have felt that way. But by drafting Anthony Richardson, Chris Ballard has cemented himself probably for at least the next three or four years as the general manager of the Colts. But I think that he said something yesterday probably trying to send a message to Jonathan Taylor's representation. And, in fact, I thought he sent a message about himself. James Boyd asked a great follow-up question at the end of this. So listen carefully to James Boyd's question and Chris Ballard's response in regards to whether or not Jonathan Taylor will, in fact, get the extension of a contract that he's been looking for. I've said this all along. Like, I didn't have – Quentin Nelson didn't have a problem playing a guard a lot of money, which other people don't either. Like, you, when guys are having great seasons and great – have a chance to really help your football team, absolutely. I mean, I, the running market is what it is, but look, great players are what they are too. So, I, I think that all works. I think there's a – We won four games last year. We won four games. Problem with that is this. What Chris Ballard is saying is exactly that to James Boyd. And it's a great question. If you couldn't hear James Boyd, what he said was, well, if that's the case and you're saying Jonathan Taylor's a great player, then why don't you pay him? And he said, well, we won four games last year. Problem is they won four games with Quentin Nelson with a contract extension. They won four games even though he was, you know, I, I know he was hurt. But, you know, Shaq Leonard, they gave a contract extension while he was hurt. Naeem Hines, they gave a contract extension and then traded him. When he says we won four games last year and Jonathan Taylor was there for the majority of them and and was a part of, you know, as you had mentioned, Jimmy, a, a big part of half of those wins, I, that's an indictment then. If Quentin Nelson was a great player that merited you extending him, 
If Shaquille Leonard is a great player that merited you extending him, if your roster has great players that you point to to say they played great for me and so therefore they got another contract, then clearly he picked the wrong guys to extend because they won four games last year. That's his words, not mine. His words, not mine. They won four games last year. I was willing to give a pass two years ago, or I guess a, whatever, 18 months after the Carson Wentz offseason that perhaps it was Reich that wanted Wentz more than Ballard did and that he was forced into it to some extent, even though he has the power to make those decisions. I'm not giving him a pass, but it was like, okay, Wentz is out of here. Now let's see what they do. He was active in pursuing Matt Ryan last offseason. He felt like, again, foolishly, like the organization has thought post-Andrew Luck that they are just a Band-Aid quarterback away from being with the rest of the AFC, and they're not. They've proven that time and time again, that their roster is not just one quarterback away in a one-year sample size from being back to where they were when Luck was here. He's now had this realization, as you mentioned, whether it was because of the new lease on life that he appears to have, whether it was looking at the roster and realizing that the way things are constructed and the way we've been doing it, Band-Aid quarterback after Band-Aid quarterback is not getting us anywhere. There's some credit to him for that. But at the end of the day, it is his fault that they only, it is at least a part of his fault that only four wins occurred last year. Because to your point, what he built this roster to be. Totally. Look, I understand. I've thought about this a lot. Chris Ballard, for the first, I don't know, 40% of the time that he was here dealing with the media, was regularly insecure and defensive. And then I think about when I have an opinion on something or I say something on the air that's absurd and people critique me or I read Twitter and people are talking about how they, they can't stand my voice, whatever it might be. It's only fair that I take that criticism and read it and respond to it because, in fact, part of my job is to be critical of other people. So I have to be able to, to take that on, right? But it doesn't mean it's easy. And it doesn't mean that you don't get defensive. So I understand and give a pass to Chris Ballard in that regard. But for the vast majority of the time that he's been here, he's been the smartest guy in the room. And he presents himself like he's the smartest guy in the room. And a little bit arrogantly and condescendingly. And then he shifted from being the smartest guy in the room to being like last year having a humility about himself, which I think probably did come from the fact of the owner probably putting him in check, and then now being like the most transparent, the most you know available guy in the room, which is appreciated. But at the same time, I think at times when he is, is showing that honesty, he's actually illuminating areas of weakness about his football team or himself. And that goes to also when he was talking about Jonathan Taylor going on the physically unable to perform list and does it the decision to put him there. I thought he might have contradicted himself a little bit and he also may have been trying to hurt Taylor, but in fact hurt himself. Here's what he had to say. We're not going to put a player on the field that's still complaining of pain in the ankle. We're not going to do that. An injury. I wouldn't do that to any player. Wouldn't treat anybody any differently. So what Jonathan will do is he will rehab his butt off and try to get himself ready to go. Okay. So he went on physical on the pup list because his ankle was still bothering him. 
And Jonathan Taylor can say my ankle hurts and they have to believe him. I don't necessarily believe that either of those two things are true, but Chris Ballard is smart there by saying, I'm not going to put an injured player out there because that's actually sending out um, a telegram to the rest of the National Football League to players because you want to be seen as a player-friendly executive. What he did right there by saying Jonathan Taylor is still injured and that's why he went on the physically unable to perform list was he basically just neutered Jonathan Taylor's trade value to other teams if Jonathan Taylor even though the deadline allegedly passed if Jonathan Taylor wanted to to try to go to another team either as a trade or at the end of the year as a free agent and let's say he doesn't play this year I don't know if that's going to be the case but teams now are like wait a minute we, we thought maybe he was damaged goods but now like you are if we're to believe you you're cementing that he's damaged goods so while he is probably at that time trying to basically send the memo out there that Jonathan Taylor's value is is less, also determining how much they would have to pay him, the same thing that he's done is if he has any interest in trading Jonathan Taylor, he just completely devalued what he's going to get back for him. And he just he just basically told Miami and the mystery team, Green Bay, whoever else, like, look, I mean – the car is still in the garage and we have not actually fired it up and given it a test drive around the neighborhood. It was automatically assumed that when he stayed on the pup, Eddie, Eddie and I were having a conversation off the air yesterday about it of he has to be still legitimately hurt to some extent because there's nothing to be gained for either party for him staying on the pup for the Colts. It's the reason you just outlined him being on the pup missing the first four games, and then the way Ballard addressed it yesterday indicates a legitimate injury that is still hampering him. It's not something that's been fully healed to the point that he can be out there and play, which in turn, addressing that, as you mentioned, hurts his value. On Jonathan Taylor's side of things, he's not going to intentionally push to be on the pup because he knows it hurts his value and it gets him further away from, and I don't think that, John Taylor's going to play just six games this year and then call it a day. Who knows at this point? But it puts him further away from the minimum he needs to hit to fulfill his year of obligation as a Colts player to avoid doing this all over again with one more year on his contract next year. It's a long way of saying that, to me, until we hear John Taylor speak, we're not going to get full clarity, and even then we probably won't. But him still being on the pup at this point would only be done if he was legitimately still hurt and unable to be out there, in my mind. But another part of this that I have to question, Jimmy, when all of this is going on, if he's still hurt and this was a basic, whatever the number was, two to six week recovery, why hasn't there been like in a follow-up surgery or a, a cleanup? Like, why haven't they gone back through to clean it up if it's still a lingering thing? And it's been what? I'm with you on that. Six months? Eight months since the surgery? Yeah, that's at a, least that's a very uh, to question. It is always dangerous to question the validity of somebody talking about pain or issue in their body, admittedly. But this absolutely reeks, Eddie, of asking that exact question, right? Like Ballard can say all he wants that everybody's different. Everybody recovers differently. And I don't disagree with him on that. But that makes more sense if it's a recovery timeline of four to six months and it takes a guy a year versus whatever, two to eight weeks, and it takes however many months we're on now, Eddie? 
Uh, let me Six, pull up the seven. last time he played. Hold on. Because it was that Minnesota game. I can't remember the exact date. But procedure was 17th, January, right? Uh, what did you say, Jake? 17th. Okay, so then Taylor had surgery probably late December at the latest. That's where my confusion with it all is. Like, I get it. Everybody's body's different, but like... Look, here's here's what it all comes down to. Yeah, it's surgery in January. It's a normal two to four week recovery. And it's eight months. Yes. You guys ever have a friend that got dumped? Yes. <laughs> yes. Eddie, I'll use you. I'll use your friend. Your friend is a guy or, or the girl in the equation? Uh, both instances, so you okay. can pick which, whichever. So so your, your, your friend, um, Billy, we're going to call him Billy, okay? So, okay. so Billy got dumped by Poor Ashley, Bill. right? Ashley dumped Billy, and Billy's calling you, and he's like, yeah, man, like I don't know if you heard, like we broke up. And you're like, that's terrible. And he's like, I, I, I really think, I mean, I, I don't know what I did, but I think I can work it out. I mean, and then Billy kind of goes overboard. <laughs> And it's kind of hard to watch, but Billy's like taking flowers to her work, and now he's like, you know, he's like standing outside with a jam box playing, you know, say anything, and yeah. you're like, uh, uh, okay, Billy, like calm down. And everybody else, then Ashley, Ashley's friends are like, oh my gosh, Bill, poor Billy, like he is really trying hard. But but what they don't know is that Ashley actually has she met a guy at work that's like really cool, and she's not really into Billy anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody knows him but Billy. And you almost feel bad for Billy because Billy, like, you're like, Billy, like, it's kind of time to move on because Ashley has no interest in saving this relationship and she's she's already talking to other people. Yeah. Right? She's mm-hmm. she's at least looking at other people. She's she's now, I hate to say this, but um, my buddy Mark saw her on Tinder. So, like, it's over, right? <laughs> so, that's where Chris Ballard is right now with Jonathan Taylor. He can talk about... Like, listen to what he says when he's talking about Jonathan Taylor, okay? When, when he's asked about Jonathan Taylor, and he, he gushes about Jonathan Taylor as a player and a person, and I don't dispute that Jonathan Taylor, that, that all of those are true, okay? But listen to Chris Ballard on Jonathan Taylor. Hold on, let me get it. Like, think about Billy and Ashley. Think about Billy doing everything and saying everything and t- telling anybody that will listen all the things about Ashley that he loves about her that he that he probably didn't say enough during their relationship and so therefore Ashley decided to move on. But now all of a sudden, like you ask Billy and he's like, Ashley's the most wonderful girl in the world, and he and he changed his like on 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 his social media stuff. Now it's like you know partnered with Ashley, the most beautiful, and people are like, uh, okay, you didn't do this during that time, and Ashley now Ashley's over it, Billy, it's over. Right, but Billy gushes about it. Chris Ballard now playing the part of Billy with Ashley. I don't want the indication that we don't want Jonathan Taylor. That is not true. Um, not true Chris. by any step. I've never once even made that statement. I think one of the things that's like the one thing that never gets mentioned, and maybe it's just because I've never really had the opportunity, but like everybody keeps bringing up the tag and the automatic. We never used it. We've never been in that situation to use it, but we've never used it. Even with guys at free agency, we haven't. So he later went on to talk about what a wonderful person he is, and, and I, I believe that, right? I mean, I, I don't think Jonathan Taylor's a bad guy by any stretch of the imagination, but he gushed about him, and Ballard said, "Like we think this is repairable." I, is it? Is it the second that a guy says, "I want to be traded," Chris Ballard? has to know. Jonathan Taylor sat inside Jim Mercer's bus 
And Jim Mercer had Jonathan Taylor alone on his bus for however long, and Jonathan Taylor said in that bus, I want to be traded. I don't want to play here. Ashley said to Billy, it's over. It's over. I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. Yeah, but what's happened, though, because there's no other analogy I can use. You put me in a dark place. Here we are. Billy is kidnapped, Ashley. Ashley is unable to go pursue new relationships that, that's, because all Billy has to they say is They have a mortgage tough. together. They yeah, have a whatever. mortgage together. Mortgage, and or they're raising kids, it, whatever it is, right? The tag is there. He can downplay the tag all he wants. He also said in that press conference that I'm not going to let him walk out the door for nothing. But here's the thing, Jimmy. You don't want a guy on your roster that doesn't want to be there no matter what unless, unless, and I mentioned this the other day. I talked about this, I think, on Monday. (coughs) Yesterday, I said that we were going to have a moratorium on using Jonathan Taylor's name, and he's now Twiggy, right? Yes. Because people are tired of hearing Jonathan Taylor. You go anywhere. You go outside right now, and people are talking about Jonathan Taylor. You go you you anywhere you go, people are talking about Jonathan Taylor, Jonathan Taylor, Jonathan Taylor, right? We've done how many shows together now? I I don't even know what what eight. Yeah, probably seven, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Two weeks. Yeah. On average, in those shows, we've mentioned Jonathan Taylor's name eight times a segment. Three segments, so there's 24 times 8, 160, 192 times. We've mentioned Jonathan Taylor's name. Are we including the Twiggy count in there or no? Does yes, that, we're okay. including Twiggy also. important just for Synonyms clerical. Count, yes. Okay, good. All right. Now. I do have that cut that you were searching for just a minute ago, by the way, if you want to go to it again. Oh, is this Billy trying to pursue Ashley yeah. through Facebook? <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is Billy on Facebook trying to tell Ashley how wonderful she is. I care deeply for Jonathan Taylor. I have great respect for Jonathan Taylor. Um, our relationship, I would tell you, is, look, even when it gets hard, I, I, won't, I won't quit on the relationship. Mm-hmm. I won't do it. Ashley already did. too much of the young man. I think too much of what he's given our organization and how hard he's played for us. Okay. But here's the thing. Like, what I was going to say is, in, in all of that gushing, in all of that, Chris Ballard standing at the bottom of Jonathan Taylor's driveway and he's got the jam box up and he's playing Peter Gabriel in your eyes as loud as he can. He's doing all that. And in eight shows, we've mentioned Jonathan Taylor's name now 194 times. And if I say it again, Jonathan Taylor, 195. I'm even counting the number of times you say JT. Add 307. 195 plus 307, (laughs) right? So now we're up to 502. Yep. Every time we do that, Whose name are we not saying? Chris Ballard's. Anthony Richardson. Bingo, Eddie. Anthony Richardson. Yeah, we talked about that earlier in the week, though. That's only going to last for so long. Once the season starts, in the same way the Colts clearly don't care about Jonathan Taylor, because if, if they did... But Jimmy, if, if Jonathan Taylor's out four games and Anthony Richardson comes out and looks like Jamarcus Russell, you know what people are going to say? But he doesn't have Jonathan Taylor. That should be part of it, but it's more at the feet of Ballard, large scale, if the offensive line contributes to it, no, if the wide receiver. Course. But yes, John Taylor will be a part of that conversation, but what we've done the last month, two months, three months, however long you want to go with this, he has been the top billing conversation because of his prominence, because he's a face of the franchise, 
And because I mean, of how his, polarizing this process has been. He's on Lucas Oil. Correct. Right? You drive on 70, you come into town. No, no question about it. But what I'm saying is, while we are sitting here saying that Anthony Richardson needs Jonathan Taylor in order to be able to properly grow on the football field, I personally disagree with that thought. But in addition to that, I'm not saying they need holdouts. I'm not saying they need drama. I'm not saying they need Chris Ballard standing at the bottom of driveways with jam boxes embarrassing himself with Peter Gabriel. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, if there is a silver lining, if you were an optimist, you would look at it and say, like, like Todd Meyer that we work with, right? Yes. This guy radiates optimism. You're Always. around Todd Meyer, literally, like like last night, he was like the super blue moon in the sky. He a is, beacon of he, hope. He yes. radiates brightness, yes. right? Like mm-hmm. he walks into a room and all of a sudden you're like, boom, it's like you're in Maui, right? Yes. Yep. And so, well, Maui's probably bad. Miami, how's that? Sure. And so... But Todd came in here and said, you know the one good thing? You're not talking about Anthony Richardson and the pressure on Anthony Richardson. And there's a truth to that. If you're an optimist, that's the way you would look at it is to say, this is a dumpster fire, but at least it's a dumpster fire that we're talking about. And we're not talking about the one guy that if he is a dumpster fire, everything goes to hell in a handbasket. If there was a silver lining, it's that. That's not now. In no way, shape, or form, zero nada. No way does that mean that Chris Ballard intentionally is no. doing that to create distraction. But it is right now. It, it is a distraction, and it's going to be a distraction over the course of the season. But the Colts aren't interested in winning games this year, Jimmy. They're not. They're interested in two things. They're interested in developing Anthony Richardson, and they're interested in being interesting enough for people to go down there to go to games. And apparently winning more than four games, because if you don't win more than four, you can't That's resign right. anybody. So <laughs> That is correct. We won four games last year. Yep. Yes, we're, I like it. Yeah, we're aware. That's a tough load for Anthony Richardson's shoulders to hold. He's got to get over four, otherwise his guys don't get paid. The thing that's hard about the claim of, to put a bow tie on it, when he said part of the reason we're hung up on why would we give money to Jonathan Taylor when we only won four games last year. I know what he's trying to say there. And what he's trying to say is we've wiped clear the blueprint because that one didn't work. And he was an integral part of the old blueprint. But we have a new architect in town. We hired Mike Brady. He's redoing the house. He's redoing everything. And he that's not the way he rolls. That's basically what he was trying to say. But what, he, what came out was – we sucked last year, and so we should actually probably be questioning the guy that was the architect, and guess what? The architect is him. Then the perfect world that happens, this is going to happen. I would bet, I would. this is IU Michigan level territory, the perfect world that would happen. Well, that's a guarantee. I know, is he misses the first four games of the season like he has to because he's on the pup, and then that extra time is enough to get the ankle going. There's an agreement between the Colts and Jonathan Taylor that, look, we're going to do quietly. We won't hear about it. We're going to do what we can to get you out of here, but the market for you is at an all-time low, especially with your injury. We need you to go out there and show us something. Yeah, and then he plays for four or five very games for the deadline, and then he gets dealt. But the problem with that, though, Jimmy, is then... But that's not going to happen because they're going to tag him at the end of the year. Well, the other problem with that equation is then if Jonathan Taylor comes out and to use a, a term that they use in the league, he balls out because he wants a big contract, okay? So he goes out and then... 13 games he rushes for 1150 yards if he does that and increases his value and everything else and the Colts decide they don't want him then what he's done in the process is is he's helped them go from a three-win team to a six-win team and now instead of being in the potential to draft in the top five of the draft and get more weapons around Anthony Richardson now they're drafting like 14th and it's like hello offensive lineman time that that you know what I mean 
I mean, that's that's the other problem. I don't think that I I don't think the Colts are intentionally going to lose games, but I don't think they're overly focused on how many they win. You know what I mean? I don't disagree with you on that, but at some point we have to see John Taylor take the field unless he's going to hold out and sit the rest of the year. Because right now it's a pass if he's no longer holding out necessarily. He can't play for four games because he's on the pup. After that deadline passes, what happens next for him? Are they going to let him have an opportunity to play and risk the idea of, like you mentioned, shaking up where draft position is? Who knows? Maybe like Chris Ballard pointed out, Andrew Luck didn't need a running back to help him develop. Maybe Anthony Richardson sets the win on fire or sets the world on fire and they're 4-0 out of the gate. I'm pulling for Billy and Ashley. I, they were a wonderful couple. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's a nice guy. I hope it works out. Have you guys ever seen Goodfellas? Once. Joe Pesci? Yes, once. You find me funny? You find me amusing? You think I'm funny? Guy that drives a car that is funny is next. 28 minutes before the hour, 3 o'clock. John, going to join you at 3. Plenty of talk, I'm sure, JMV's input as well, and opinions on yesterday's Colts press conference. Jay Quarry along with Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison here as well, joining us now on the hotline. He will be participating this weekend. As a matter of fact, already in town for the u.s nationals which if you have never been there are certain things in indianapolis that are absolutely awesome must see somebody just sent me a thing they said jake you should do a segment on must things to do in indy let me tell you one of them the u.s nationals out at lucas oil raceway i've got to make sure that that's actually the name of the raceway now because it changes a lot but um out in claremont is absolutely fabulous it is the best event on the nhra schedule it is their super bowl it is intense as hell and when they do it at night it is unbelievable under the lights when you see that the flames and the cars going down the strip it is absolutely awesome and one guy that's been able to take home a u.s nationals championship drives the dodge direct connection Charter SRT Hellcat Funny Car. I hope I got that right. Matt Hagen joins us, the 2016 U.S. Nationals Funny Car champ. Matt, how are you? Hey, glad to be on the show, brother. I'll tell you what, you uh, that's a heck of an intro, man, but you're exactly right. It's its like nothing else that uh, you get to go out there and see these cars that are 11,000, 12,000 horsepower, 80,000 foot-pounds of torque, 330 miles an hour, and it all happens under four seconds, you know? Now, you, if I'm not mistaken – and I think this may still be the case, but you tell me if I'm wrong here. You actually at one time had the the fastest the, the record for fastest run at the at the U.S. Nationals. Am I correct? I believe so, man. We've set so many national records; it's hard to keep them all straight. I mean, my crew chief, Dickie Vanables, is uh, he's incredible, man. I mean, we've we've been able to win uh, you know several championships together. I've won a, won another championship with another crew chief, but uh, I mean, he, I think we have like 47 wins or something like that together. So it's just. It's just, uh, I mean, the guy puts a heck of a race car underneath me, and I'm just, you know, tickled to death when I get to put my mouthpiece in there and get up on the wheel and drive the drive wheels off this thing, you know? Now, I'm assuming you need the mouthpiece because, and, and Matt, let's let's do this this way, Matt. So I do, you know, I'm around racing a lot, right? And, and I'm around all forms of racing, and I've got a great appreciation for the sport. That's not to say that I understand the nuances of it like obviously you do, right? But well, I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, you got four seconds to figure it out, right? right? But you know the 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 thing that I always try to do in these situations, and I hope you can appreciate this, is you know we're doing a sports show that's talking to a broader audience, so I'm always trying to introduce people to it. Now, I think if you look at the television numbers at the NHRA, and you look at the crowds that you guys gather, there are a lot of people that know about it for sure. I mean, it's it's a it's a prominent sport, but for those that are unfamiliar with it. 
you know, basically you've got four divisions. You are in the funny car division. That's the one where the car basically at the end of it looks like one of the old Big Mac boxes and the top pops up. And and, and the the goal is to get down to the end of the line, in the not necessarily before the other guy because it depends on reaction time, but in, in the, 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 the shortest amount of time, obviously. How much of that is for you – just working on, in fact, your reaction time, how much of that is reliant on the team itself putting together the best engine that has no issue? I mean, if you, what does separate the, the, the infantile difference between first and second in your sport? Yeah, I mean, it comes down to your your people. I mean, the rules are so tight right now, you know, I mean, that there's not a whole lot of, of I guess, extra R&D that we can do. Um, it comes down to really a gut check with the crew chief as far as how much weight he can drag it up there and how much, you know, on the clutch and how much uh, he got the fuel flows open. And, and uh, you know, I mean, it's just really kind of one of those things where a lot of these cars run really close to each other. I mean, it's hard to believe that at 330 miles an hour, these crew chiefs can dump out a pile of parts and pick from a bunch of, you know, two or three different vendors and put all this stuff together. And they, they run so, so close. Well, I mean, we're talking about thousands of a second, you know, as far as what divides, you know, number, number one and number five, you know? And so uh, it's just, it's incredible, but for someone new to the sport, I would say that, you know, I promise you, you won't be disappointed if you come out. I mean, I've, I've been out here driving for 15 years now in a fuel funny car and over 20 years in the sport. And it's just been uh, one of those things where, you can't make your TV, you know, kind of like shake and fall on the floor. But once you get there, you know, and it's the same with our, our, you know, our sponsors pitching them in a boardroom, you know, on a PowerPoint deal. It's like, promise, guys, take one Saturday, come out here and check this out. And it sells itself. I mean, to this day, you know, I have people walk up to the ropes and they go, hey, you know, uh, this is my first time. I was like, take five minutes, come back and tell me what you think after you watch some fuel cars run in. And everybody was like, oh, my gosh, I'm blown away. I had no idea. I mean, every organ in your body rattles up there when yeah. two fuel cars leave. The, <laughs> Matt, the you don't watch it. Up. You feel it, right? I mean, honestly, yeah, like it's, you, it's, feel it. it's, it's, yeah. you smell it, you know, the nitro, you smell the nitro, you, you feel the, the power. I mean, it's just, there's a shock wave that hits you when these cars go down through there. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you can't explain that to somebody until they they see it and that goes with our sponsors everyone that's ever come out they're like okay where do i sign up let's do this you know but getting them out there is the hardest part you know and taking that saturday away from their family or 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 having them bring their kids and stuff out and it's such a kid kid friendly environment too i mean every ticket's a pit pass you get to come out and watch the guys tear the car apart and under sometimes we make 30 minute turns where the car comes all the way apart down to the crank and you know and they'll even check some of the main bearings and stuff like that and and then go back and put it back together fire it up and drag it up there in under 30 minutes and it's just it's incredible to watch these guys work and then you you know you get to go up there and watch these cars go 330 miles an hour that just got totally rebuilt in, in 30 minutes you know i can't hardly get my old change in 30 minutes you know so it's just like it's incredible to what these guys do and then you know, to go out there and just have such a uh, unbelievable experience of feeling what that raw horsepower is. I mean, it's, it's seismologist came out and it's a two point three on the Richter scale. It's a small earthquake when these cars leave the starting line. Matt, how do you keep yourself so mentally focused? Like, what goes into that aspect of it? Because as you mentioned, all of its reaction time, one false step here or there, and you know, it's a false start. How do you keep yourself so locked in? Yeah, you know, that's something that a lot of people um, don't realize is how much this is mental. I mean, I think that you just, you know, I mean, we pull close to seven Gs on a run, you know, six and a half and almost negative seven Gs when the parachutes come out. So I look really young for a while and then I look really old when the parachutes come out. But it's kind of, <laughs> it's one of those things where it is a mental game. And, 
you know, I, I was very, very blessed early on to work with some sports psychologists, um, you know, that worked with a lot of different athletes as, as far as, you know, uh, baseball hitting, pitching, golf, all kinds of stuff that really takes a, you know, a toll on you mentally. And for me, you know, it really kind of helped me win my first championship back in the day because of the pressure and dealing with pressure and being able to rise to the occasion and make something that, you know, a lot of people would think like, don't mess this up and turn it into something like, this is my moment and this is what I waited on. And here's, here's how we're going to capitalize on this and, and using your mind to overcome some of that pressure and do that kind of thing. So I think that that goes a long ways in racing, but it also goes a long ways in business and life and everything that you do that you wake up every morning and, and set yourself up for success so uh, I've been very blessed to have a lot of the racing and that mentality carry over into my different businesses that I own at home and different things that we do on our day-to-day and uh, you know the mental side of things I mean I've watched guys you know run against me for championships and they're puking in the trash can in the bathroom and they're just like oh man I don't know how to do it I'm gonna mess it up and you know you just kind of think that man they you know you got to work on your mental game every day just as much as people go to the gym and work on their physical game and I think a lot of folks don't realize that that that, you know look at any athlete out here that is in any professional sport they're all very gifted you know individuals but what separates them from being great and from just being a great athlete um you know and and versus being a, a champion and stands out and makes millions and millions of dollars is their mental game you know and 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 that's something that I think that uh a lot of people go huh I didn't even think about working on my mental game. So, yeah, the pressure, the the competition, the the mental side of it, the reaction time, all that stuff is something you have to work on every day. And I mean, if you're not working on it, the guy beside you is, you know. The Dodge Power Brokers NHRA U.S. Nationals taking place right now, as a matter of fact, out at the Lucas Oil Raceway at Indianapolis Raceway Park. Tickets available at NHRA.com. Joining us now, Matt Hagan joins us on the program. Now, Matt, you're a native of Virginia, right? Correct. Yes, sir. Okay. When I was in fifth grade, I had to do a state report in Mrs. Imamura's class. Virginia was my state, so I know all kinds of fun facts about Virginia. Uh, the dogwood, <laughs> by the way, is the the there state tree of Virginia. I know that much. So, so that said, I'm going to ask you a trivia question about my home of Indianapolis. Are you ready? Okay. Let's see what. Matt Hagen is the track record holder at Indianapolis in both time and speed. He said it on February, uh, excuse me, Friday, obviously not February, Friday, September 1st of 2017. So happy upcoming anniversary of your record. Uh, the speed right. that you achieved in order to set the new record and be in the record books at the Indianapolis, Lucas Oil, Indianapolis Raceway Park. Can you get within a mile and a half of the speed that you set, Matt? What year was it? Because it increases every year, it seems like. Friday, September 1st, 2017. I will tell you that it was at 3.799 seconds. You were one of only two to go underneath 3.8 seconds on the strip. Okay, so that's going to probably be mile an hour-wise somewhere around 336 miles an hour, 337. Buddy, I'll tell you what, 338.77. Now, when you hear that, do you ever think to yourself, like, holy cow? And my question is this. When you do it, I've I've been fortunate enough to do the two-seater out there, and the Gs are unbelievable. Like, when you take off, it feels like you're – it literally, for me, it felt like I was falling out of an airplane. Right. Do you get used to that? I mean, do you, from a physical standpoint, when you do this so often, does your body acclimate to it, or do you get that – that absolute rush every single time you know it's absolutely a rush every single time i mean it's kind of like getting on a bull you don't know how it's going to come out of the gate left or right or you know spin around so that that rush never goes away but yes you're as you do it more you know my first run down the track i i got out and i was like 
hey guys, am I good? Am I on fire? And the safety guys tell, and I was, and they were like, you know, man, I don't know. I was like, well, you tell me, I don't know how I got here. You know what I mean? Cause it was, you know, these things are going by you so fast, you know? And, uh, but as you do it more, your mind does slow it down for you. I, I mean, it's never a super slow mo. I mean, where you're picking out the pretty girl up there and round, you know, stay in the stands and, you know, the, you know, it just, but it's one of those things where it does slow down. It's just like, you're, you can hear each cylinder fire. You can hear the clutch come to it. You know, you hear the motor and how it just starts to run away with it after the clutch welds. And, and, and you know, it's just it's just a lot of stuff going on that you're going like, how in the world does my brain process this, this quick? You know, because it's all happening in under four seconds. And uh, But it does become slower for you. And, and no different than any athlete, you know, when they step into a new league, the game's super fast. And they're like, oh, man, i got to catch up. And now, you know, and the same for me. The game's super fast when I first started. But I've had thousands of runs in one of these cars now. And, and it, it does start to slow down. But what's really cool is that you, you know, we have a data logger on our car that, that logs over 50 things that these crew chiefs want to look at and, and check on a run in under four seconds. And what's, what's cool is like, before we even put the, the chip in the computer, you know, I go back and I said, Hey, you know, it, it kind of was wearing clutch, you know, uh, this much out here, right here. It put a cylinder out over here on the left side of the car, pushed me a little bit towards the left. Um, it, it was spinning the tire on the big end down there a little bit, looping it, but not really spinning it. And then you come back and you look at all that data and your crew chief's uh, man that's spot on and that's what's really cool is when you become a driver that can really relay the information to the crew chief and he could see it on the the computer and it comes back and you're going like you nailed it kid you know what i mean so that's to me i take really you know a lot of pride in being able to do that with my my crew chief but we've been together for 11 years and i've been driving one of these things a long time so there's no replacement for seat time but you know, when you got these Dodge, you know, Hellcat funny cars up on the on the tire, man, and they're running, they're digging, and it's just it's unbelievable to be able to hang on to something that's going that fast. It's it's just pinning you in the seat, and it just keeps pulling. And everybody's like, "What does it feel like to drive on this?" And it's like it's like a mule kicking you in the in the chest. You know what I mean? Like it just you just pinned and it's digging, and you know they're like, "Why can't you give an interview on the top end when you come out?" It sounds like you're out of breath. It's because I'm I'm 250 yeah. pounds, you're, and it's your body weight times seven. You know, no so, question, and I'm the adrenaline. Yeah. Right. All right. Last question, uh, Matt. You were driving for Tony Stewart Racing. There was a time where being around Tony Stewart, he'd probably be the first to tell you, it was like being around a mule where you didn't know it was going to kick. Um, he's married now and he's doing new ventures, and he seems like a, a far more. I've always liked Tony, but is he a more chill dude or is he still as intense as he's always been? You know, I've seen him get intense a few times here and there. Uh, but for the right reasons, you know, for, for you know, basically uh, we had a, a crew guy that, you know, lost his grandfather and my crew chief tried to kind of handle it without letting Tony know. And Tony was come up in the lounge and he's like, we're going to get something straight. You know, nothing happens around here unless I know about it. That way I can help his family or do whatever we could do. And Tony is just absolutely one of the best guys I've, I've gotten to know. I've, I consider him a friend now. I mean, we've, we've, you know, gone out and hang out and, you know, it just, he's just a great guy and he, he cares about his people. He treats them great. He pays them great. Um, I just can't say enough about him. And I would say it even if I didn't work for him anymore, you know I mean? Just I've had nothing but a great experience with Tony and he's just, but he's one of those guys where he's good at everything, man. He got in my funny car and he made four laps and he went to Ohio and won a, a, a dirt race right after that. And I'm just going like, dude, what are you bad at? You know what I mean? Like it just, he's just a very talented individual and it's just, it's cool to see him 
bring all the all the notoriety to drag racing, bring new sponsors over, bring, you know, all these people and get them involved. And he's genuinely excited about drag racing, man. I mean, he's racing this weekend here at the Nationals. And, you know, it's kind of cool to, got, you know, you go over and click helmets with him and crawl in your car and, you know, go watch, you know, and support. And, and he does the same, man. He always gets under my, my car and he's like, hey, let's go do driver stuff, man. Get up on the wheel. Let's go. So he pumps you up as well. So just an incredible individual. And I'm, I'm really proud to be driving for him. Three-time Funny Car World Champ, 2011, 2014, 2020. And Matt Hagan, also a winner at the U.S. Nationals. 21-point separation with Ron Caps right now in the Funny Car standings. Matt, appreciate it. Um, keep them straight, keep them fast, and have a safe weekend. And certainly wish you the best of luck. Appreciate the time today. Hey, thank you, guys. I appreciate the time, too. And like I said, if you guys come out, anybody comes out, I promise you won't be disappointed. You'll be a new fan of drag racing. It is awesome. There's no question about it. Appreciate it, Matt. Um, Jimmy, if you've never been, man, I'm telling you, you go especially on Friday night when the, under the lights and, and the flames come out of that thing. You don't have to be a fan of racing. I get it. I mean, I get why people would be like, yeah, hey, it's just cars going. I totally get it. But it's like sitting next to the speakers at like a Metallica concert. I mean, it is it is a an all-senses experience, no question about it. We'll come back, put a bow tie on it, hand things off to John as well. It is Query and Company here, 93.5-1075, the fan. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a f- athlete. This is my f- way. This is how I win. College football is back. Well, it was back last weekend, but you get the gist. We got Thursday night football action. I'm going to take Utah, lay five on the spread, they're at home against Florida. Also going to go under 43 on the total for Nebraska at Minnesota. Give me the Marlins over the Nationals and some MLB action on the money line and the Braves over the Dodgers also on the money line. Uh, tomorrow, by the way, and, I, and listen, I totally understand why people are like, wait, what? Because I was just off last week. When I made the move to the midday, there were a couple of things that were set that you know, under the assumption that I'd be leaving at 10 a.m. because I was doing a 7 to 10 a.m. That includes the IndyCar race this weekend in Portland. My flight tomorrow is unfortunately right during this time because it, you know, was booked months ago. How dare you have a life not prepared for a show you didn't know about? What are you doing? (laughs) I'm just, I'm just trying to be explanatory. So you guys will man the ship and man it capably tomorrow. Uh, what all do you have planned for tomorrow? James Boyd will be in here. We'll definitely be giving him a little little round of applause as he's 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 made the waves a little bit today and around social media for his question of Chris Ballard. Additionally, we'll get you set for college football. Andy Staples will stop by. Greg Rosenthal of NFL.com. Talk a little bit. John Taylor, big picture NFL. Nate Atkins along for the ride as well. And, of course, some bets for the weekend. Uh, tonight, by the way, Modern English at Hi-Fi. Uh, my birthday is Sunday. Shannon's birthday was Tuesday. We are celebrating Happy early tonight. Birthday. Thank Happy you. early birthday, yeah. Uh, 51, no one really cares. But um, but thank you. We're going to Kuma's Corner for dinner, and then we're going to the show at 8 o'clock tonight. So if you're in Fountain Square, be sure to come by and say hi. JMV's up next. Thanks for listening to Quarian Company.